This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, January the 18th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone to give us a shout to get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86. 26. Good to be back in the chair this morning. Big thanks to Tim Powers and Linda Swain for sitting in for me while I was away for a few days. And off we go. Let's look forward to speaking with you this morning. Okay, so a bit of a snow, squally day. Be prepared if you're out and about traveling on the province's highways and byways. Sporadic and unpredictable snow squalls may indeed be the feature of the day, so look out. Uh, Dawson Mercer won assist last night in uh, a loss, though. 3-2 to the Montreal Canadiens. Habs looking good the last few days after they absolutely stunk the joint out at the Bell Center are losing to the San Jose Sharks last week. But, of course, good game against the Oilers. Beat the Avalanche. Beat the Devils in Jersey. Love it. I don't know how much traction this story got here in town while I was away, but it got lots of conversation in the national sports media and certainly on the mainland talking with some of the lads who I don't really know, just kind of know from around the sport. So Terry Ryan on his 47th birthday laces him up for the Growlers. The David, any calls on that by chance? Pretty interesting stuff, so good on Terry. It's a pretty good story, and it was widely covered by the national sports media, but anyway, pretty wild you want to take it on. Let's go, and it's a bit of a stale story now, but I really did want to sneak in a hearty congratulations to the St. John's Hitmen. They were up at the Ice Jam Tournament in Nova Scotia. It's a premier event for the under-15 hockey world. All kinds of scouts from Major Junior and the NCAA will be in attendance at those type of events. The Hitmen have had a solid year here in the local circuit. One loss in 20 games, pretty dominant at the Ice Jam as well. Won five of six. Beat Moncton Hawks 4-1 in the final. Young Aaron Witten. I played with his dad, Sean Witten. Uh, he had a pair in the uh, championship game. Singles from McCarthy and Johnny Russell. So congratulations to the St. John's Hitmen. And of course, there will be Raptors fans bemoaning the fact that one of the key players, star players, one of the most... I think endearing players on the Raptors in some time. Uh, Pascal Siakam traded off to the Indiana Pacers. That's business, and of course, that would be unfortunate for the Raptors. Fans, all right, so here we go. Oh, congratulations to the Mount Seahawks cheerleaders. Cheerleading, especially in the United States, is big business. It really is absolutely massive. So the Seahawks cheerleaders went down to Orlando to compete in the World Cup of cheerleading, came away with second place. Pretty amazing stuff, so congratulations to them on a random sports note before we get to other matters of more importance. It was on this date, 41 years ago, in 1983, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, posthumously, posthumously restored Jim Thorpe's Olympic medals, seven decades after he absolutely pummeled his opponents with performances that still earn him the title as the greatest, greatest athlete of all time. Two gold medals that he won in the pentathlon and decathlon were taken away. Why? Because he earned pennies absolute pennies playing semi-pro baseball for a little while so he's a native american from oklahoma uh 
absolutely unrivaled in college sports. It competed in football, baseball, track, lacrosse, hockey, handball, tennis, boxing, and even ballroom dancing. So at the start of the Stockholm Games in 1912, Jim Thorpe had never ever in his life thrown a javelin or pole vaulted, yet he replaced third and fourth in those events. And in the 1500 meter race, he crushed the field with a time that no one will beat for six decades. Jim Thorpe got his Olympic medals back on this date in 1983. One of the greatest athletes of all time, so they say. All right, so a lot of talk about ride share and what have you. And, you know, people talk about Uber coming to town and whether it be Lyft. And, of course, they have now been outpaced by the first ride-sharing app in this province will be Cabby. So it's locally owned and operated. Good for them. You know, but people have ever used Uber. It's pretty convenient stuff. That said, I did use the Jiffy app in the recent past, and it's as every bit as good as Uber. It absolutely is. So the way that Jiffy is up their game is admirable. And their app, if you don't have it and you're considering some better alternatives for calling or hailing a cab, it works out famously. So cabbies in town, we'll see whether or not that's followed. There will be questions about how they recruit and vet their new drivers, what the insurance coverage looks like. That's one of the big concerns for the local cab companies around the province, is just the cost of getting the insurance placed on your cab. You know, you get set aside in that faculty insurance pile, regardless of your driver's app so for local cab companies if you want to take it on and i will give jiffy their due shout out their new service is pretty great and of course that does not replace the fact that it's hard to get drivers these days of course based on number one cost of operations predominantly when we talk about cost of insurance but cabby k-a-b-b-y first ride app sure but i'd say that's second behind jiffy All right, so I was long waiting and hoping for some results of the three-month pilot program regarding speed cameras in Mount Pearl and Paradise. So I guess while I was away, Minister Studley made time for the program on Friday to share a bunch of interesting information, including the data compilation for these speed cameras. And I'm sure Linda or just Tim must have talked about this, but I want to talk about it anyway. 94,000 vehicles traveling at speeds more than 11 kilometers or 11 kilometers or more over the posted speed limit. 94,000 in three months. 500 speeders a day. 25% were logged traveling speeds of more than 20 kilometers an hour over the maximum. You can only hope that for folks who are so-called potentially against this and talk about the need for front license plates and what happens if it's not me driving the car, all of those concerns that you hear brought forward, if we can indeed see this pilot program drop the tag of pilot and be put in place, not only in Mount Pearl and Paradise, but as many areas as we can, I, I think I'm in the minority on this one. I think speed cameras are a great idea. I don't know what the average price of a speeding ticket is, but in, for $94,000, 94, speeders in three months, talk about return on the uh, cost recovery model. Shouldn't $9 million in three months? So if that's at 100 bucks, I don't know how much a speeding ticket is. Knock on wood, haven't had one in a while. But that, I think, justifies the uh, usage of these cameras, not only those two communities, but in other parts of the province. And I think you're probably going to see them move that direction. When people get used to seeing the speed cameras, knowing that they're there, just very much like a uh, squad car, a police cruiser, it will absolutely be the reason why people slow down. And we've got a massive problem with that exact issue here. Aggressive, reckless, distracted, speeding, driving on the Northeast Avalon. I would imagine in many parts of the province. I mean, even when you hear from some mayors on the province's west coast, now that the RNC is set to expand their geographical footprint and or presence, you know, I think that comes to play officially on the 1st of February. 
Some of the communities, they talk about the inability for the RCMP to staff these areas. And, you know, if you get a call in the middle of the night, it might take hours for the RCMP to respond. Consequently, with 10 new officers, the RNC will be out there. They even talk about things as fundamental as speeding and drunk driving and other motoring-related issues. So on those two speed cameras and the RNC expanding their presence, probably two good ones to take on. A quick sip of coffee, one second. We're back. All right. In the world of the RNC and charges, what have you. So two of the teens that were a part of that brutal attack on a 16-year-old student at Prince of Wales Collegiate have been sentenced. One to 24 months, one to 18. They pled through the lesser charge of aggravated assault versus the attempted murder charge that was hanging over their heads. What we have not heard is exactly what that altercation, that brutal assault, has meant for the Department of Education, NL Schools, which have rebranded from the NLESD to NL Schools, at what cost, we don't know. What has changed? Because inside the walls of the school, with safe schools and some of the protocols and policies that are in place, we do a pretty good job. Now, we've heard a lot of stories about student-on-student violence and notably student-on-teacher violence. So lots yet to be understood about how we're going to deal with that particular issue. But then has there been any meaningful change at your child's school regarding monitoring the playground or the parking lot or the associated areas where at recess or lunch or after school they get they hang out? whether it be the circle with uh, the vape being blown all over the place and or potential violence. And that particular issue was massive at PwC. The injuries were extensive, and two teens have been charged, of course. One young fellow will be tried as an adult. I think he's back in court sometime next week. And speaking of violence, I mean, we've heard this story or these stories from the Registered Nurses Union and the president of Vet Coffee. Yvette Coffee and her group are now asking for government to create an independent arm of government to look at issues regarding violence in the clinics and at the hospitals. So when they talk about burnout and mandatory overtime and work-life balance and the issue with working shoulder-to-shoulder with the travel nurses, which, of course, is a massive concern, apparently, so says Ms. Coffey, is we're losing registered nurses because of violence. So apparently... Just like everywhere else where there's a, an assault, so the police will be called. And oftentimes, they will be told, pardon me, the uh, nurse or the representatives or their supervisor will be told, well, not much is going to come of this. Why? I have no earthly idea. There are special laws associated with violence against registered nurses and other healthcare professionals. If I heard this story correctly, I'm told that in the recent years, there haven't been any charges laid on that front. Look, when you're waiting forever... A friend of mine the other day told me that he was waiting uh, almost 16 hours for two stitches. You've heard my story about one of my buddies waited 10 and a half hours for a half dozen stitches. So, of course, people are frustrated. Then the angst and anxiety that comes with having a bad diagnosis and or prognosis or worried family members, none of which is a justification for lashing out physically against the nurse or anyone else working in the hospital or clinic setting. But... What does government have to do about this stuff? So are we talking about just more and more expanded security presence and even a hired security guard? What can they actually do to intervene and or to preempt an act of violence uh, against a nurse or anybody else working in the hospital or clinic? But they're talking about it quite clearly, and that's a problem. Stick with healthcare for a minute. So the negotiating committee representing the allied health professionals, so I heard Brian refer to them as AHAP, they're walking away from the collective bargaining. Uh, the president of the Treasury Board, of course, the Minister of Finance, Siobhan Cody, has asked Labor Minister uh, Bernie Davis to appoint a mediator. 
We'll see what becomes of it. But this is a problem. I mean, they're looking for equitable treatment, you know, the equal pay for equal work. And the minister responsible, Minister Cody, has said they've made a generous offer regarding wage adjustments and factoring all the other issues regarding long-term service, leadership premium, assigning bonus, other concerns around fairness and compensation. Obviously not satisfactory per allied health professionals. They work under an essential services agreement. So even if there's a job action in the form of a strike, there will be that piece of legislation in place to determine who has to continue working. They represent a pretty wide gamut of healthcare pros, anesthesia assistants, respiratory therapists, audiologists, childcare services consultants, sexologists, dietitians, genetic counselors, kinesiologists, uh, medical flight specialists, mental health counselors, occupational therapists, and on down the line it goes. So this is still one of those outstanding collective bargaining that is yet to be resolved or finalized, so they've walked away. They've been without a contract for a long time. And I'm pretty sure Mr. Piercy, Gordon Piercy, at the Allied Health Professionals is probably unwilling to get into the details about where the stall is, if it's all about pay or any other outstanding issues. And yes, it's fine for an essential, uh, essential services agreement to be in place, but for those healthcare pros, add it to the list of the ongoing, seemingly never-ending concerns that healthcare pros have. And you've all heard the stories as much as I have, I have but anything under the banner of healthcare that's of interest to you for discussion this morning, Let's do it. Of course, part of our health is access to healthy food. So, you know, some people are in the business of defending the big retailers. And we know that there's five companies dominate about 80% of the food retail in this country. And this one, I'm not sure what you make of it. But for folks who are price conscious, which is most of us, because it's madness to go to a grocery store. Food prices have come back to earth a little bit. Food inflation still uh, remains quite stubborn. But for the savvy shopper, whether it be with coupons and or the flyers, and that's how you shop, and I totally get it. I pay more attention to the flyers and coupons than ever before. Loblaws. <clears throat> okay. So upon expiry date, they would have the opportunity through flash food or maybe just a presence in a shopping cart in the grocery store where you can get a product at 50% off. Now, people are, you know, take your chances. If it's a certain kind of product on its expiry date, might not be attractive to some, but certainly to, to others. So they're moving away from a 50% off, which I seldom see anyway, to a 30% off. They say it's much more in line with their competition. All right. What's the issue here? So... Of course, it's just additional revenues. People can talk about the slight margins that the grocery stores uh, achieve. Now, we do know that their revenue is up and their profits are up. The Competition Bureau has been asked to get involved in this. There's an NDP member of parliament asking for the Competition Bureau to investigate. That seems to be just a go-to these days. Now, it might for some feel predatory it may indeed stink of unfairness. What happens when and if they don't sell that product? It goes in the garbage, and consequently, my understanding is, they simply get to write it off against as a loss, and consequently comes with a tax-related uh, measure of relief. But why do these things? You know, when we do know, there is a certain air of greed uh, across big business, but in this one, it just comes across as not reading the tea leaves or taking the temperature of the room. If indeed you were bringing people possibly to your store for that particular purpose, then you create a long-term customer, possibly. So now with this going away, 
you know, this is going to backfire. Now, some of us were just stuck with our habits. You either shop at Coleman's or you go to Sobeys or you go to Dominion or you go to No Frills or whatever. That's your habit. That's your go-to. You get used to it. You may be complimented with a bit of Walmart, maybe additional products that you enjoy buying at Costco, for instance. But for Loblaws, this one, you know, in all the air of conversation and the worries that we all have with the price of food, even the federal government, which I think is always a pretty bad idea for the government to get involved in pricing of products, especially when we talk about food. It backfired on them a couple of decades ago when they tried to get intimately involved. It went absolutely the wrong way. But what do you do here? Is this a competition bureau issue? Is the Competition Bureau actually set up to say that they can or cannot sell at a discount of 30, 40, 45, or 50%? But anyway, I think it's a overall bit of a bad move. What do you think? All right, a couple of quickies before we get to your calls. I haven't been watching the call screen, so I don't know if anyone's called yet or not. All right, so the folks in Nova Scotia are looking right at the federal government and the federal fisheries minister about the pending decision about redfish in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. All right, so the federal mis- minister is Diane Leboutier. In Nova Scotia, they've had access to that redfish. The size is pretty clear. It's probably the most healthy stock out there. Some 4 million metric tons in play. Nova Scotia, which has really been the only place having a run at the redfish, we've heard from some uh, south coast shrimp harvesters in this province looking to have their license bought out, and they'd love to have a share of the redfish. Okay. So they should. So the decision is coming. The minister seemingly has showed her hand, saying that everyone's going to get a piece of the pie. And you know, absolutely, we've talked to Greg Pretty from the FFAW on this program. If you're a shrimp harvester, and the formula is terrible for these people, their catch rates are down, way down, and the cost to operate up way up, which is unsustainable. So they really are hoping, fingers crossed, that they get a piece of the redfish pie or quota. It's all about the total allowable catch, but at the province of Nova Scotia, look, so be it that they're worried. And yes, we need some regional collaboration and cooperation, but we really need this in this province. You know, the whole concept of looking out for number one, which we will in this case. Remember, Back in 2016, there were big Nova Scotia offshore fleet that were fishing for northern shrimp off the coast of Labrador. Everyone got involved, DFO and the union and the governments were spatting back and forth, but it did result in one ridiculous policy that went by the wayside. It was LIFO. LIFO came out of nowhere. Or it's the last and first out. And it was a terrible policy. And through one of the amendments of the Fisheries Act there, I think it was in 16 or 17, that whole LIFO policy went away. But Nova Scotia has had their cake and ate it off our shore. And we don't consider the redfish in the Gulf of St. Lawrence to be a Nova Scotia stock or a New Brunswick or PEI or a Quebec stock. It belongs to DFO, Canadian Waters, and hopefully we get a piece of that redfish pie. If you're a shrimp harvester on the south coast and want to take it on, let's go. All right. I want to talk about elections for a second. So the PC party here in the province has withdrawn uh, any participation in the All-Party Act looking at election reform. They say that it's been a bit of window dressing, and I think Jim Din from the NDP would agree with that assessment. So we're talking about what was an absolute fiasco, right, back in the last general election. It was COVID interruption. They couldn't get election uh, employees or staffers to operate the in-person voting. Then it was the delays with mail-in ballots and all the rest, but so the PCs are walking away. Barry Petten has been speaking on behalf of that party on that front. Look. Democratic reform, election reform, amendments to the legislation, something has got to give. We need to do everything we can in this province and in this country to understand the process of elections, to protect the integrity and people's faith in elections because it has been eroding. Unfortunately so. 
Some of that maybe seeps into our psyche coming south from south of the border. But on that front, Elections Canada is also uh, launching a portal, a website, to combat election disinformation. This is important, and I don't care what party you support, because some of the absolute, patently ridiculous, absurd disinformation that floated around in 2019 and 2021 has got to be combated. It's not about who's the arbiter of truth. It's not about content coming from a politician or a political party. It's about key areas where we saw and read, especially if you're on social media, a ton of absolute gibberish. Talking about special ballots, way to vote, the counting process, and notably, we don't count ballots in this country uh, by machines. Every ballot is counted by hand. And even when we talk about the special ballots and the mail-ins, so there were some 1 million special ballots in 2021. 883,000, or 87% of them, were returned on time and counted by hand. But you heard the exact opposite, that they were ignored or lost or weren't counted or whatever the case may be, which is simply not true. Then we talk about voting technology, foreign interference, the administration of elections, the administration of Elections Canada, and campaign finance. So it's not about whether or not Mr. Trudeau or Mr. Poliev or Mr. Singh or Ms. May or whoever is saying something that may be half true or untrue. It's about the process, which is important. So we'll take that on as well. And it looks like the Ethics Committee is debating as to whether or not the Ethics Commissioner should get involved in looking at the most recent trip. Talk about staying at a Tony resort. The Prime Minister and his family, three children, and his I, I guess they're separated, right? They're not divorced yet. Sophie Gregoire Trudeau. Anyway, so they go to this lavish resort family friend peter green owns the place so this is not the first time that this has happened so the ethics commissioner looked at it and approved that travel some years back to this exact same place the prime minister has to pay for a commercial flight rate for he and his family that's part of the process afforded to all of the politicians but this one here is another cell phone what are you doing so now the Ethics Committee is hoping, uh, certainly the members that are not sitting on the government side, are hoping that the Ethics Commissioner takes a look at this one. Had he paid out of pocket to the tune of a $9,300 a night room, total cost would have been about $84,000. The last time that they went down there, it was $162,000. Most of that, of course, goes to the security. Personnel costs, RCMP, the Royal Canadian Air Force. But at some point, someone who loves them, has got to step in and say, what are we doing here? These are issues that just create opportunities for online and or TV ads talking about nothing but ethics. It's important. You know, we've got a problem here in the country. And, you know, you go back to the whole comment of they're entitled, their entitlements. Enough is enough. And it's not just the prime minister. This goes on, unfortunately, throughout various levels of government. But the prime minister himself, ha- himself has a really uncanny way of making this the story, you know? I don't know, it just gets on my nerves. How about you? Anyway, we're on Twitter. Oh, and today. Huge day for small businesses. I'll dig into that a little bit further. Today's the deadline to repay your SIBA loan. This could go extremely badly for small and medium-sized businesses across the country. While some of the biggest companies that weren't impacted at all during the pandemic, available wage subsidies and the like, This is an issue, and we'll dig in a little further, but the government really, if they're going to be wise about protecting the economy, opportunities for rebound, if we see small businesses go bankrupt and close their doors, and of course all the jobs associated with it, that will be a dagger to an already flat or stagnant economy. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us here. Email address is openlineofvocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. We're going to kick it off with uh, the president of the Nurse Practitioner Association. That's Travis Shepard. Don't go away. 
Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board. Line number one, say good morning to the president of the Newfoundland and Labrador Nurse Practitioners Association. That's Travis Shepard. Good morning, Travis. You're on the air. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. This will be extremely fundamental and basics, but, you know, when we talk about healthcare, people are just so used to and wanting to go to see a medical doctor, a doctor, the white coat. That's where people have their faith and the trust. They understand what a doctor does and the kind of training associated with being a medical doctor. And, you know, this might sound a bit silly, but I don't think people really understand what a nurse practitioner is, to be honest with you, and whether or not that healthcare professional is exactly what the what they need, as opposed to needing to see a doctor. So let's start with the very basics, Tra- Travis. What kind of training associated with being a nurse practitioner, and then we'll get into exactly what they can and cannot do. All right. So the training of nurse practitioner. First off, a nurse practitioner starts off going through a bachelor of science nursing program, a bachelor's degree in nursing, and then becoming a registered nurse. After meeting the qualifications of a couple of years experience in practice, they can move into a master's degree graduate studies program through a uh, accredited university. Um, after they complete their master's program, uh, during their master's program, they'll complete uh, nurse practitioner program courses and um, preceptorships, um, somewhat like a residency component that you would see from medical doctors, where they'd be paired up with either a doctor or a nurse practitioner to gain experience in the field of, um, of primary health care or in, in other areas of care as well. And uh, then they go on to write another licensure to get a dual licensure to practice as a nurse practitioner. So let's talk about what a nurse practitioner can and cannot do. Number one, they can operate autonomously. They don't need to be, to be overseen or monitored by a doctor. So give us the basics, you know, especially when we talk about the number of orphan patients that are out there. What kind of things would I go to see a nurse, pra- nurse practitioner for? You could see a nurse practitioner for really any health issue. Right. There's no limits. Uh, we can provide primary health care services for anything that uh, that a patient may need. Um, the same goes for you. You'll also find nurse practitioners in tertiary care centers. You'll find them in hospital settings, critical care settings. You'll be talking to them through uh, virtual means, through 811. MPs are all over the place doing, um, they can do an array of things. And there's really not much limit in the last few years on what we can actually do. Okay, so if I need a test ordered, I don't need to see a medical doctor. My understanding is a nurse nurse practitioner can not only order their test, but in many cases can also interpret the results. Absolutely. We can diagnose and and treat conditions. We can uh, give you your blood work requisition. We can uh, provide you with a prescription. We can order um, x-rays. We can order ultrasounds, CT scans. We can't order MRIs, but nor can your um, GPs in practice. No. Uh, that would have to be ordered by specialists. So we can order virtually any diagnostic test that you would uh, avail of in a primary healthcare setting. What about a basic medical procedure? We can do certain procedures. It depends on the nurse's, nurse practitioner's level of competence um, and experience. So if a nurse practitioner has experience in small OR procedures and they have OR privileges, which I don't believe any of us do, then they could perform those procedures, such as assist removal. Um, you will find nurse practitioners suturing patients in emergency departments or uh, other areas. So we can perform different skills. In terms of surgical procedures, usually very minor procedures um, that don't require a lot of, uh, a lot of assistance. Um, but yeah, we can, we can do minor procedures as well. Um, and there are some advanced 
nurse practitioners that have different qualifications that work in critical care that can put in central lines and do all kinds of different things. We talk about what I think is extremely important in healthcare, whether it be mental health and or physical health, is the continuity of care. So if and when, and this is quite common in this province and across the country, people who are dealing with chronic pain and or chronic illness, how does the nurse practitioner make sure that there is that continuity of care? Because when you have a chronic issue, you really do need to be able to see the same person that can monitor whether or not you're getting worse or you're getting better, how to manage your symptoms. So talk about an MP's role in the issue regarding chronic illness. Well, that's an ideal circumstance to have the same provider providing the continuity of care. Uh, now, with the lack of primary care access, people are kind of hopping from one area to another to get their prescriptions refilled for chronic issues, particularly chronic pain or when you're talking about uh, controlled substances. Um, so there is a big issue with that. It, it is vitally important because to build that rapport with your patient, understand if their pain is being treated effectively, to be providing them with adequate refills, um, you know, and to be monitoring their progress and make sure that uh, it's meeting their needs. The other part of it is that you want to ensure it's being safely prescribed, um, and that's a critical piece, particularly when it comes to issues like chronic pain. Can a nurse practitioner prescribe and or refill a narcotic? Yes, they can. Yeah. We have um, tamper-resistant um, prescription pads that we uh, obtain through uh, the pharmacy board, and uh, we can prescribe narcotics and uh, benzodiazepines and different medications if deemed necessary, of course. This is not a decision that we would take lightly uh, due to the safety um, implications, hence the reasons controlled substance. So, but we can, we can prescribe um, those medications as well. You know, we all understand if I go on the patient connect list and I try to be matched up with a family doctor, and more likely when the problem moves forward with all the 35 forecasted collaborative care clinics, if I'm an orphan patient today, how do I even go about getting an appointment with a nurse practitioner? I mean, because that patient connect can be effective. I was on the list for about 11 or 12 months before I got a doctor. So how can I connect with one of your professionals? Right. So Able and One has stepped up to the plate here. We do have virtual uh, nurse practitioners that are... Uh, taking this on and uh, you know they're amazing professionals they always step up to the plate so 811 has instituted um, capacity to uh, refill those prescriptions safely through that network I will say that on the ground there are a lot of private practices as well that are open to prescribing these medications um, provided the person continuously comes back to them the issue is is that in those settings, uh, NPs on the ground are not awarded any funding from government to support that initiative. So primary health care right now uh, for private practices is not supported by the government financially, um, nor is it really talked about in any meaningful capacity to create change around it. So NPs are kind of stuck in silos, I guess. What would that meaningful discussion look like? Give us an example. Is it all about uh, funding? It's all about funding. If you see in Alberta now, they have a funding model in Alberta that uh, supports MPs working in um, public and private practices. And that funding model is allows MPs to set up practices in their own communities and be funded through the government for them. So they don't have the weight on the government to take the initiative. The MP can take the initiative and be that leader of healthcare. So. Um, that's, that has huge implications because you would see a lot of registered nurses wanting to become nurse practitioners in the future if they had that level of autonomy and that level of opportunity. Uh, right now, the opportunity is limited 
to whatever government-led initiatives exist. I'm not going to try to initiate you sparring with other healthcare professional organizations, but is this an issue simply of lobbying power, you know, protecting one's territory, whether it be the uh, NLMA, who would like to see doctors solely have that type of funding support available, or why do you think there's any hesitance here? Because there's a political victory to be had if you make access to healthcare a little bit easier than it currently is. So why do you think, why do you think we're lagging behind versus, say, the province of Alberta? Yeah, well, in terms of power struggle, um, I'd be careful with that. I don't believe... I don't believe there's necessarily a power struggle currently going on between NLMA or NLMPA. Okay. I think that we're developing a good working relationship. I've been speaking with their president of the NLMA, and it seems to be respectful conversations. Um, and you know, But I do think that the hierarchy part exists, and uh, I think they need to get rid of that. I think the government needs to change that frame of thinking uh, particularly, and they have the power to do it, and I, I trust that they could do it. But they haven't done it yet. So what they need to do is level the playing field for the nurse practitioner, provide them with the funding model so that they can operate and open up their own clinics, display that leadership, take initiative, and see what happens. Instead of dishing out the money to other physician-led initiatives, such as Teladoc, which they paid $22 million for, and never gave a cent to a nurse practitioner already in the province, homegrown, much like myself, and there's many others doing that kind of work. So it doesn't sit well with nurse practitioners, and it does seem to be just blindsiding us. Nurse practitioners have been in practice in this country since, I'm not exactly sure, maybe the 60s and 70s. What would the key role be for a nurse practitioner? If we Say we can change the funding model. It sounds to me, based on this conversation, any base knowledge I have about nurse practitioners, this is tailor-made for some of the solutions in more rural, remote, par- remote parts of the province. What does the recruitment effort look like? Because when we talk recruitment and retention, people basically think of doctors and registered nurses. So how does that effort look like regarding your group? Yeah, we're kind of lost somewhere in the midst of all that, I find. And we're not often talked about. We're not the largest workforce in comparison. We are registered nurses as well, but nurse, registered nurses that are nurse practitioners have a dual licensure. But registered nurses take up the bulk of the province's, um, you know, they're a huge resource. Physicians are often looked at as what the government is trying to attain. They're trying to get more registered nurses, trying to get more physicians, there's little talk about nurse practitioners in terms of retention or what were looked at as second best were the gap fillers, which is nothing worse than being looked at as grout, you know, <laughs> between the tiles, I always say. Um, it doesn't seem like a very um, enjoyable or um, opportunistic career. So I, I think they have to get out of the gap filling type talk, but we're always looked at as, okay, we'll put you in, we'll re, um put you in a position, a nurse practitioner in a position where you can fill the role where a doctor doesn't exist. No, a nurse practitioner should be first choice, just as well as a physician will be first choice, in providing primary health care services all across the province, whether that be rural or urban. I don't really know if there's any real urban places in most of Newfoundland, but you know what I'm, you know what I'm getting at. It yep. doesn't necessarily have to be just the rural parts of the province that are getting nurse practitioners where physicians just don't want to go. Um, We have to be looked at as first place, equal partners too, and not gap fillers. Good to have you on the show this morning, Travis. Appreciate the time. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. Take good care.
Take care. All right, bye-bye. It's Travis Shepard, president of the Newfoundland Labrador Nurse Practitioners Association. The reason for those types of conversations is because I do think that we see nurse practitioners in particular, I guess we can say with LPNs and others as well, kind of lost in the shuffle here, yet providing really experienced, valuable contribution to the healthcare system, and maybe, just maybe, a better understanding of what a nurse practitioner can cannot do may ease people's worries when they know they go to a collaborative care clinic or what have you and you didn't get to see the doctor but you saw the nurse practitioner but your ailment might be exactly what that person can absolutely deal with. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, snow clearing and Alan lives up in Airport Heights. He wants to talk about the government's decision to lease the Comfort Inn for some three years for this so-called transitional housing to go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic and weather conditions. Plus interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. All right, let's go. Line number two. Otto, you're on the air. Hello, buddy. Hiya. Lovely morning. Not bad, Zal. Oh, I just wanted to shine bright in here this morning, eh? It was dark here five minutes ago, but it looks like it's brightened up noticeably out in Kenmount Terrace, so that's nice. Yeah, I'm going to set records, Greg. Now, I went to work with the Highways in 1970. We had three eight-hour shifts, 24-7. And we had no spares. We had to give them back of a dump truck, five-ton dump truck, and shovel sand. We'd done Sunnyside, Comrade James, Arnold's Cove, Arnold's Cove Station, and Little Arbor. And we shoveled out three, three dump trucks on a ship. Three, and Mr. Habit is wrong. He said we never had no 24-hour service. But that, when I went to work in 1970, like I got above the truck with a minus 30, pretty keen for work that day. And we had some highway depots, if I'm not mistaken, between 2008-2016 that did indeed have pilot programs with 24-7. That's right, sir. That's Mr. O'Ditcher was on top of that day. But Mr. Wrong, he's wrong, Mr. Habit is. Like I said, I've worked two winters on the highway, and then I went in the stock room. I went from labor to management. When the, when the management took away holidays, I filled in for him. And Mr. Habit got to come on your hair and tell me that we didn't have 24-hour service. We did. Back in 1970, no harmony. But my God, there was a lot of men when the senior was. There was three operators, one greater. Three drivers, to dump trucks, hey, no splitters. You just shoveled out by hand, eh? That's a long, hard day. Or a night. You out three loads a night. You go to the fire center, I'm going to come back. I tell you, it was a lot of road, eh? I remember one night going up center, ever. There was no pavement then. The road was one sheet of ice, say. Turned off the freeze. We end up in the ditch. We could broke our bloody neck, eh? Standing in the back of the truck went into the ditch. Yeah, I come over over a, a tailgate of a, a tandem. I pitched on high square on my back. I got up and went to work. Well, I would come back to the farm now. I, I'd be reported, eh? Well, two years down the road, I used to have a non-pain in my back, eh? So I seen the specialist. He said, you in the car accident? No. I came in over a tailgate of a dump truck, but you see, you had disc damage done, eh? So I had four back surgeries after that. 
two hip replacements. Dr. Maroon told me my hips are going to get bad, eh? And sure enough, you got bad. When did you have your hips replaced? Uh, the first one, I'd say about 20, 23 years ago. The other one was about 10, eh? Okay. The one I had done 20-something years, he's getting bad, eh? So I'm 80 now. The doctor said, if you ever live to be get 80, you'll need to replace again. Hey, you gradually, you never submit it, and you gradually, hey. So I had an x-ray there a week ago now. I have no results yet. Well, the whole world of medical advancement regarding knee and hip replacements has changed dramatically. It used to be that was a big, big deal and a possible big problem. Now, yeah, seemingly, no. people are recovering quicker than ever. I guess that's the well, you technology. Well, you don't have to see an no, Yeah, it's amazing. I think it goes on the same day. Now, when I had my first, uh, Dr. Hogan, he's a big man. But he don't do that now. He, he's spinal, I think. Okay. But Dr. Sloan did it. Hey, I went back for a checkup. No need to come back no more. He said, your head's perfect. No, I haven't had a headache with it, eh? I didn't play a hockey with the headache with the eh? Yeah, I got buddies of mine now. I'm, I'm not too far off, maybe. Hopefully, unfortunately, maybe you have to get a knee done. But well, that remains to be seen. You played so, hockey, Paddy? I did, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I played in the old training building. That was rough, eh? Yeah, we played yeah, some well, pretty rough hockey. Yeah, well, you, you can go around hanging in your bucket. They're <laughs> getting hit, eh? It's different hockey. It's fast, but different, eh? It's wicked fast. I saw a game, yeah. uh, a couple of games uh, this past yeah. weekend. The the pros are just truly amazing. Well, uh, well, so, auto before I played uh, Arbor Grace. That was fast hockey, boy. Sure. So we're we're talking about several decades ago now. No, no. This is the weekend. Oh, you were watching the senior. Yeah. Okay. Who who I played? Think was in first place, right? Yeah. So who was in Harbor Grace? Pardon? Who was playing in Harbor Grace the weekend? I don't know, but uh, Clarence got three more road games, I think. Okay. Yeah. And then you you get Mr. Habit on TV, on, on radio. But yeah, uh, he's wrong, but 24-7. No problem. Before I let you go, Otto, how yeah. many winters were you operating out of the back of the truck slinging salt? Two. Two. Boys, oh, boys. And I went to work in the sack room, eh? The labor right to the manager. When the, man- when the manager went on all ladies, I replaced him, eh? You must have had some pretty wicked forearms. Uh, well, I'm 80 now. I, I, I left. I'm working away every morning. Eh? Okay, good for you. In good shape, but for, I'm going to trap next year. I used to be a uh, trapper, I'd say, for 50 years. Eh? So my grandson, now he's going to get his license this year, spring, and me and he's going to, I'm going to break him in. But going out what, rabbits? No, no, coyotes. Oh, otters, tra- lynx, trapping the bigger animals, okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good to have you on the show, Otto. Okay, I'll see what I can do. Thank you. You're welcome. All the best. Have a nice day. Better you doing good. Thanks a lot, Otto. Appreciate your time. Bye. I take care. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Back of the truck, slinging salt with a shovel. <laughs> yeah, different times. Okay, let's try to get back on track with the breaks. Alan, you say right there to talk about the comfort in issue and the transitional home that it will be to, I guess it's 140 rooms, if I remember correctly. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number four. Alan, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hey, how are you? I'm doing okay this morning. How about you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Grand. I just uh, talking about uh, comfort in. Yep. I live in the area, like very close in the area, and uh, you know, uh, I got buddies of mine 
<clears throat> in these stand case may be it, uh, a body uh, on a business there on airport zone drive, <clears throat> loopholes that they had a jump through. They had a jump through. They had a jump through because it's a business. Because it was uh, after 11 o'clock, as you know what I'm saying. Uh, I feel, and Mr. Brazel's son and Mr. Welcome, if they're there. Uh, with this, with the comfort in, as a community, and I'm all about there for homeless. I'm there. I I support it. I donate. But personally, I don't think, and I can recall back because I'm seven years at seventy years at Snow Clearing. <clears throat> First year never been at Snow Clearing, and I can remember. A lady here in Grand Falls of Cornerbrook <clears throat> with an addiction. Patty, you understand what I'm saying? I think so. So, what exactly? What exactly is your concern with the Comfort Inn and the people who will be staying there? So, is it about the fact that you think that there might be uh, elevation in crime and or vagrancy, oh, or what's, what's your worry? Elevation in crime. There's going to be elevation in crime because. I know people, the news only, sorry, I don't, I know people that talk to me, and I know, like, like the, uh, the actual inside, Tent City, <clears throat> sorry, everyone is listening to me, Tent City, sorry, <clears throat> I know that, whatever, Paul Davis, <clears throat> You're running, but you can't. They're not allowed anywhere else, Patty. Who's not allowed where? I just want to make sure I'm following along here. So yeah, no, like it's just. Uh, I'll try to get out. Uh, the homeless, and I'm homeless. I open up me, but it's just the drugs, and uh, my daughter is. Close down, goes to school, and there's needles. It's just that the comfort in, which was almost bankruptcy, and I think that there's something going on behind the scenes because our Newfoundland government is paying $7 million, which is $4,200 a month per person. And I got six bedrooms, and uh, you can take my house for $20,000 a month if you want to. Well, I, okay, let's dig into this a little bit. So you're not wrong, and I've heard from many people who live in and around airport heights, and they have built-in worries about the fact that there is going to be, quite likely, people roaming around their neighborhood and the possibility for more drug use, more needles, potential for more crime, because it's a come and go, right? No one is locked in. It's not a detention facility, just like the gathering place. Folks who avail of their services, they will come and go. Now, not everyone is homeless or will be at the Comfort Inn or no. the gathering place or the Salvation Army. That's what I'm saying. It's not everyone. I take people in. But it's just, we got 140 homes going down there and there's 
little old women. I, you know, uh, my wife uh, lost her father two months ago at 72 or whatever. So we're taking care of her mother at 72 or 74 or whatever she is. Look, you know, you're going to have them, but you're going to have someone take away from them. Do you understand what I'm trying to say, Betty? Yeah, I'm making every effort here. I don't know what it's going to look like so far as security inside that facility is one thing, but what it might mean for increased police presence or patrols in and around the area, and I'm not trying to paint everyone with the same brush, and I know you're not either, Alan, because there's going to be some folks up there who simply need to get some assistance, get back on track, maybe try to kick a habit, maybe try to get some training, maybe, just maybe, to get some help if they actually really need it. Some people will not be that way. Some people are absolutely going to be potential problems, and again, this is not looking down my nose at a homeless person or someone with a mental illness or someone with an addiction, it's, it's, but it's, it's reality. Not, You're right, Alan. It's the reality. I'll buy a sandwich, but it's you know, with my old man, I always said, uh, "Sorry, no one's listening. It's it's what you choose, my man, and that's the way I take it." Yeah, I don't think everybody who falls into that predicament has made some sort of conscientious life choice that says, well, you know what? I'm going at the heroin, homeless, ah, best kind. I don't well, necessarily I think up, that's the case. I grew up fish. So it was either, if I didn't cut a codfish, I was going overboard. So it's pretty much just how I was reared. Sorry. You know, lobsters and that kind of stuff. I grew up on, uh, yes, yeah, so. Okay, so you were fishing. What do you do with these days? I mm, you don't have to say no okay yeah anything else this morning and uh yeah Paul Pike yeah with that uh, Paul Pike announced it so uh if like I said my friends Mr. Brazel he <clears throat> Fought for a year, fought for a year, trying to open his business here in this community. But uh, they can, the government offered $7 million, but <clears throat> what is the by-election in this area, Teddy? Yeah. I don't know how much this would have to do with the by-election, because if we're just doing a political calculation, it might hurt the government versus help their candidate, because this will be a concern for people living in the uh, the district yeah, itself. Yeah, well, I, I took stand, I know there's people there, I took stand because no one else would, I took stand in our community. Who stand? I took stand of saying this, and uh, come online, or on open line, and spoke about it. Fair enough. Right? This this is uh, you know, my daughter lives at uh, got the bus at seven forty. And I got to tell her to be careful. Like 
Yeah, I, I mean, I understand that concern. And I've heard from many residents. Now, most of it, of course, via email. People don't want to, you know, necessarily uh, come across like they're just trying to kick those who are already down on their luck. But look, it's the reality. It's a possibility that there will be more people roaming around the neighborhood. There might be an uptick in crime, property crime and what have you. So what the plan is regarding the government and or the RNC to acknowledge, because it is a common goal, just like it is with every other shelter uh, in the province. So it's it's an issue that I'm not afraid to talk about because that's the reality facing the residents there. No, I'm not afraid to talk about it either. It doesn't um, sound like it. You know. Anything well, else quick before I go to the break? Quick. Uh, yeah. uh, just got... Uh, <laughs> sorry. There's three topics I want to talk about. The Serb fucking... Sorry, language. The government. With the Serb. With the companies. The SIBA loan? Yeah, the SIBA loan. Yeah. They're trying to take every, like, if, if the, uh, the, uh, the federal uh-huh. government yeah. try to take everything and try to make people, there's going to be thousands of people out of jobs. Possibly. It's a big problem that I'm going to dig into again right after the news break, which I have to get to uh, right now, Alan, but I appreciate your time. Okay. You take care. All right. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right. That issue, today's a deadline for the repayment of that SIBA, the outstanding balance on your SIBA loan, which is going to be a massive issue. It's, I would think, my personal opinion, it's in the federal government's best interest to work with these businesses. You know, there's some that are able to pay it back, but there's many teetering on the verge and just trying to make it week by week, payroll by payroll. So we'll see where that goes. We can talk about that or whatever's on your mind right after the news. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, line number two. You're on the air. Dave? Is that, Hi, is it me? That's you. <laughs> Hi, I I just wanted to call in because I've I've actually been in my car all the time freaking out about Uber. <laughs> if you want to know the truth, why are you freaking out? <laughs> well, since about '96, I have taxied in my spare time. I have long before COVID. There's been a lot of taxi stands in this town, and they were all busy. Okay, and then. So then along came those, you know, those little things that came along with the delivery people. And they started to screw over our population and basically everybody in town. So, like, for instance, if you got two Towtons down to the Bagel Cafe, it cost you $12. If you got a taxi to deliver to you, it cost $15. If you get a delivery service to deliver to you, it costs $36 for the Towtons. <laughs> So to me, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so is that a common feature that someone would call a cab to bring him a couple of Towtons? Listen, that's Listen. been happening. That's been happening, like, all over town. And if you were delivering liquor like that, it would be called bootlegging, wouldn't it? 
It used to be you can get a bottle dropped off late at night, no problem. There was one cab company no, particularly. You can that was do that. Yeah. yeah, but you can still do that. You like I said, that's that was a common feature. You can get anything delivered, diapers, prescriptions, anything for fifteen dollars. But all of a sudden these other people come in and they 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 up the price of the food and they they make people think for some reason, I don't understand it. Well, then, then we looked up the Uber requirements, uh-huh. and they so these late like they want seventy percent plus. You have to have a car under five years old, five years old and up, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to have a commercial license on your on your car. Why can't one of us or just a regular person? If they're going to offer up a license and us to pay it to Uber, why couldn't we get our own customers in our own car and put our own in our own population? Why are we paying that to somebody else? Okay, so I'm not sure I understood that last point. So, if someone who's driving a traditional taxi would like a little bit more freedom and schedule themselves as they see fit, they can also become an Uber driver if and when Uber ever comes to town. So, but people need to know what they're getting but, themselves but into. Right what? But Uber wants you to have a car that's five years. When you look at all the requirements for Uber, yeah, that why couldn't you have your? Why are you paying Uber at all? Why are you giving Uber a percentage of your? your what you're doing at all why wouldn't you just do it on your own why couldn't you pay for that license why couldn't you pay and go get 25 customers and service them all you want i think you're talking about why not why don't we have more people who are operating say for instance like in new york city gypsy cab well it's not a gypsy cab because that's basically what you're asking if you plug in we plugged in how much it would cost from red bridge road to shenanigans and it comes up eleven sixty six. That's how much it would cost Uber. When you get into a taxi with CBS Taxi Cab, uh-huh. it only costs eleven dollars. Well, that kind of and stuff for, regarding price disparity, people just simply need to know what they're getting themselves into. You know, there that's is what a I mean. f- hold on. There is a feature as well when it's peak travel time that Uber will increase their rates. So that's what I mean. As long as people know what they're doing and know what they're getting themselves into, that's just part and parcel between business. Regardless if we're talking about retail shopping or getting a cab or an Uber, if you know what the cost would be to hop in a CBS taxi or to hop in a Jiffy versus get an Uber, people will make their own decisions. And if they choose the most expensive decision, that's on them. Oh, guaranteed. But if they don't, I, I specifically know that a lot of people don't know taxis will do delivers for $15. So, I know that. So $15 is a flat rate? $15 to deliver stuff. That was always, when I was when I was 16 years old, sure, I got Northwest. They delivered something for $15. I had Tim Hortons delivered to me. <laughs> $15. That's it. Plus I mean, the real cost of the food. As soon as your rear hits the seat, it's four twenty-five, I think, on the meter. So 15 bucks is a pretty good flat delivery rate, but I right. suppose there's got to be some geographical concerns there. You know, you well, can't say... if you're in St. John's, that's, it's all in St. John's. When you're in CBS, it's all in CBS. It goes from Kellegrews right up. Then if you, were, if you actually had some service in Paradise... That would be the same way in Paradise. Whoever had the licenses in Paradise, they do a $15 delivery. I think it's $20 to the liquor store. If you want something special, they'll give you a race. Something special? Does that include Towton's? (laughs) I don't know about that, but I know that's what DoorDash charged my cousin when he got it from the hotel, and he got DoorDash from Bagel Cafe. So that's what the charge was, $36. Yeah, that's a couple of expensive lumps of dough. 
right? Yeah. So here I am sitting down. Like, there's a whole bunch of issues that I see around town because I've been going around. Like, anyway, besides that, but this taxi issue, I just don't like drivers to get screwed over if they're going to become an Uber driver. And I don't like the people, the customers, to get screwed over by these companies. And it just makes me so upset. Right? Are you okay. feeling any better at all now? <laughs> no. Well, it's off my chest, so there. Okay, <laughs> so I appreciate that. Yeah, look, I get the concern, and there's still lots left to be understood about rideshare services. Now, I admit, I just came back to town uh, last night, and... On the mainland, I use Uber exclusively. Why? Because it was easy. Okay. Now, here locally, I'm probably still going to stick with the local cab companies, to be perfectly honest. Why? Because I know some of the boys are at or at it, and I know it's local and the money gets recirculated here versus I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood 30% automatically flies out of the province. So I'm a bit of a shop local kind of guy anyway. But people like these rideshare services. Now, use Jiffy's app. I, I gave him a shout-out off the top of the show. I thought it worked famously. So people will, you know, make their own decisions. But it is important for free, for folks to know there is the possibility but there is also but there is also our population is over 50 and a lot of those people aren't going to use that app so they like to call up and talk to somebody or they could get these specialized more customer service more personalized service because that's what we're about yeah there's still a dispatcher that jiffy though uh you can call the cab you don't have to use that okay, guaranteed but when one like there used to be eight of eight cab companies and you had all kinds of choices and we had all kinds of Anytime, anywhere, right? Have you ever uh, worked as a dispatcher or just a cabbie? Oh, why, yes, I have. I worked as a dis- dispatcher at Valley Cabs. Oh, yeah? I worked there for four years. I worked I worked in my spare time. I worked on the shore. I worked for seven taxi companies in my spare time. So, industry uh, no. veteran. Did you, oh, tell God, the cl- yes. did you tell the classic dispatcher fib when asked for, well, I called for a cab, and what did you say when, before you hung up? What do you mean? So I said I need a cab to my address. Did you say right away? Oh, no. I never. I always say if we were too busy, I'd say within 20 minutes. Okay. If I'd say within an hour. But I'd always answer the phone. <laughs> always answer the phone. But anyway. <laughs> I appreciate the concerns. Hopefully, now that you have it off your chest, you feel a little bit better. Well, I do. Okay, Thank good. You. I appreciate the time. Bye-bye. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Uh, well, let's get a bouquet before we go to the break. Line number one. Karen, you're on the air. Yes, good morning. Hi, Karen. Hi, Patty. Hi. Good morning. I was just listening to your uh, conversation on nurse practitioners. Uh-huh. Um, I'm from Hampton, and our doctor that we had for years, uh, Dr. Wassel, passed away a few years ago, or a couple years ago. And uh, we lost our doctor, and we figured that we'd probably never get anyone else. But we were fortunate enough to get a nurse practitioner, um, Sarah Bursey. Um, I didn't know her when she came to Hampton. I only know her now as a nurse practitioner. But I love the, the nurse practitioner. I love the fact that you don't have to take the time to go to the clinic and get pills refilled. You can talk to her on the telephone. And if you've got any issues, you can discuss that with her. Or if you need to go see her, then you can. But if you're just calling for a basic, you know, prescription refill, you know, you can do it on the telephone, which don't take much of her time, which frees her up to do more. And it gets our... You know, gets my job done without and gets my prescriptions without me having to be out to the clinic waiting for my appointment. 
Yeah, we purposefully invited Mr. Shepard on this morning to talk about nurse practitioners simply because I don't think there's enough of an understanding about the critical role they can indeed play in the healthcare system. So we did that on purpose just for information sharing. Yeah, I learned a few things this morning of things that they're capable, you know, they're allowed to do or permitted to do as nurse practitioners. But I do believe that we're a privileged community. To, uh, to have a nurse practitioner and probably some of those areas that don't have nurse practitioners or don't have doctors, you know, that's, that's wondering if a nurse practitioner can do what they need done, uh, this will be a nice information to let them know that, you know, they can get things done without having to go to the clinic and having to have a doctor there to do prescriptions or whatever. Absolutely. They have a wide range of abilities and training associated with it. So uh, they are absolutely one of the key components or the key professionals. And that's not to diminish anybody else. Of course, it's not registered nurses, of which they are registered nurses, and or doctors, LPNs, and everyone else who's in the healthcare delivery. But every now and then, I think we purposely try to, you know, identify one group of pros, fill in the blanks about what they can and cannot do. So maybe, just maybe, that if someone who needs to go to a clinic doesn't get to see a doctor but gets a nurse practitioner and maybe is disappointed or not really thinking that they're seeing the right person, you probably are. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Um Another thing that I have, um, you know, that I have observed is that a lot of those nurse practitioners have worked in a hospital setting. You know, they've been um, licensed nurses for, you know, for years. Mm -hmm. And they've seen lots of things and they've learned lots of things that probably they're not uh, permitted to do. But they can advise them pretty easily on what a patient needs to do because they've seen it before. Sure. You know, whereas doctors, mostly when they come out, they go into practice and unless it's their field, they don't see, you know, they're not very versed on things that, you know, come in, especially when they merge and whatever, right? Which is why I think people kind of underestimate the wealth of experience and training and the, the breadth of the discipline of being a general practitioner. My, there's a reason why they were considering adding an extra year of residency because they deal with everything under the sun. And, of course, then onto yeah. the specialist when and if it's a serious matter. Uh, Karen, appreciate the time. Anything else this morning? No, that's it, Mother. I just want to throw it a bouquet to Sarah Bercy and, and let her know that she's doing, a, I see as she's doing a great job in our community. And we are very privileged to have her in our town. I'm sure she appreciates it. What town is it, did you mention? Hampton. Hampton, okay. Nice to have you on the show, Karen. Talk later. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you for taking my call. Anytime. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, uh, there you go. Let's take a break. When we come back, Addiction Services. Reg wants to pick up what uh, Otto was laying down regarding snow clearing. And Dave is going to talk about Heart Force One. It was a pilot program that had been launched. Now it's going to be based full time in Gander. We'll hear what Dave has to say about that after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Just a friendly reminder, the fact that I was away for some, I think, four shows means that there's a significant backlog in the email. So I just saw one coming out of the corner of my eye. Someone says, I'd really appreciate a response. Well, I don't even know when the initial email came in. I'll do my best to dig through it, but there's a lot there. So if you need me to see something today, if you resend it, that'll be quite helpful. And I'll try to get back to you as soon as I can. Let's go to line number three. Morning, Dave. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? That's kind. How about you? Well, boy, not bad. It's just uh, par for the course. I learned something yesterday that uh, absolutely astounds me. And once again, before I go any further with it, because I, I, I'm, I'm basically going to call out the Premier right now and our Minister of Health. But what I'm going to do is I'm also going to call out Scott Reed 
and Tony Wakeham. We just seen the RFP for this new Heart Force One initiative of the Department of Health, directly the responsibility of the Premier, I think, and 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 the Minister of Health. Mr. Osborne. They will always say that the RFPs are dealt with by the procurement office versus ministers responsible, but fair ball. Yeah, but what I'll say to the both of them is that if you're not watching the RFP and seeing what's in it, the contents that should be sought after, it'll be no more effective than the RFP that you just called for to integrate ambulatory services on the ground and air and what you're doing with it in, in Gander. They never even got any type of input from the people involved in that service now before they called for the RFP. Weren't even quite sure where the problems were or how they could be fixed. And that is blatantly evident in what they just did to the entire west coast of Newfoundland, west west of, uh, of Deer Lake. Just I one second. The list. Let's not conflate two RFPs because one for the ground and air ambulance. Yes. And then, of course, there's another RFP. That, that RFP went out in December. Then the Heart Force One issue, that RFP went out in September, if I'm not mistaken. And a tender has yet been granted on that, right? Yes. Okay. The RFP is out, I guess, and awaiting scrutiny and then, of course, awarding of the RFP, I suppose, to whoever the lucky proponent would be. Sure. Well, here, Premier Fury and Tom Osborne, maybe some of the problem that we have is because of your lack of input into these processes. Stephenville Airport and Stephenville Hospital are the only sites that have an airport, well, we're lucky enough, we also have a hospital with an emergency and an effective ICU five minutes away. But once again, our area, Stephenville, has been left out of the RFP for landing sites for Heart Force One. So by the time you make it, say, from whatever point you're to that you're going to avail of this service, be it Rose Blanche or Lourdes or or, or uh, uh, mainland or whatever the case may be. By the time you make it here to Stephenville, you got another two-hour journey ahead of you to be able to avail of that service. And the Stephenville Airport being left out of this is not only insulting, it's downright irresponsible. And I'm poking this right at Fury and Osborne. But as well... We got two MHAs here. Now, one sits in opposition, but he is the leader of the opposition. So, Tony Wakeham, get on this. Scott Reed, this happened by your government. You are directly the one that I'm pointing the finger at right now for our hospital being left out of this. And that also speaks to the true intention and how effective Western health is for us out here in Bay St. George. Okay, so just one second. Yep. When the RFP was uh, let for the Heart Force One location, did it at one point include the potential for it to be based in Stephenville or Deer Lake or Gander or Town or wherever? Because if I remember I reading this... I thought it did. I, I don't know. I, I was asking an honest question because I did not read the RFP necessarily. So... I think the minister said recently that the decision to base in Gander had been made very recently, and consequently, 
does that mean there was a change to the RFP period? Because if it's not going to be based on Steamville, it might change the possibility, say, for instance, uh, Evis Air to get involved because they basically operate out of Central. So, you know, it would always allow for provincial airlines to be involved, for PAL to be involved. And those are probably the two front runners on that site or on that particular issue. So I would think, yeah. I'm going to have to try to find out if there was a change to the RFP. If so, that's a fair question as to why. Now, it just makes sense to me, you know, given the geographical location of Gander International Airport, good hub for things like whether it be air ambulance and or this Heart Force One to be set up. So, And I, listen, whatever the site is that it operates from, I, I, you know, it, it'll come down to logistics and what makes the most sense in terms of available and, and near services and all that. I, I get that. Now, that's one. That is an issue. Okay, I, I'd love to see it come to Stephenville, and we'd say we'd spread some of these things out. But if Central is the better site for the actual centralization, the operation of it, that's fine. But they haven't even listed Stephenville as a landing site for the service. So, in other words, everybody from Conroy Valley, Portobasque, all of the Bay Saint George region, uh, uh, Burgio, whatever the case may be. Stephenville won't be an option. It's not going to be on the plate. You'll still have to go to Deer Lake. I have no earthly idea why that would be the case, to be honest. Yeah. I, there's still a lot to be understood about what exactly is going on at Stephenville Airport, to be honest, you know, because there's certainly more questions than answers at this point. Oh, I'd, listen, I, I wouldn't even bring one issue together with the other. But it is a viable airport. They are able to land planes. They have, I mean, we're right next to, Stephenville Airport was shown to be the most effective and safest airport in this province a few years back when Pell's pilot had to make a decision what was the safer airport to land at when he had to land with no landing gear in front of his plane. 42 souls, I think, aboarded that plane that morning. Stephenville was the safer site. It's got the longest runway. It, it, it's, it's got the best number of visual flight days that you don't need to worry about operating under no temp every year consecutively, one of the best on the eastern seaboard. But yet, this type of thing shows, to me, the intention for the future, not only of our airport, and anybody can say, well, you know, that's private airport, but so is Deer Lake. Deer Lake's a private airport authority. they got their own system. As far as that goes, they all are. Yeah. So why would Stephenville be left out of this? i got to tell you one thing. Like, it's easy, I guess, to snub people and get and eliminate for whatever reason if you think they're not going to say nothing, but I guarantee you this one is going to come with a fair bit of pushback. Yeah, I'd like to know whether or not there was a change in the RFP since it was first let in September. I'm going to have to go and have a look at that. I don't know, nor do I know why Stephenville will be left out. I am curious as to what constitutes the safest place to land. I know that Stephenville has the longest runway. I suppose that plays a role in you know in safety, especially if you've got the issue regarding landing gear or what have you. But I wonder what else is involved in that uh, issue or that awarding of Stephenville as being the safest place to land. That's... Interesting. Yep. I don't know what that would be. I don't either, and I would appreciate it if you could dig further into it. Sure. And I'll also say to our premier, especially the premier, because the rest of the team is underneath you. You 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 look you look for the chief, Mr. Premier. Come on, and you tell us why it made sense to eliminate Stephenville from this heart. Force One service that you plan to integrate supposed to benefit the entire province. Why did you leave out everybody west of Deer Lake? You would think when we're doing things like this that the closest 
airway airport to the patient would be the place where you'd land regardless. Yeah. Like, I don't know yeah. why we'd carve out any airport. If I'm in Stephenville and I am that patient, why would I have to go to Deer Lake? Exactly. You know, I think it's a fairly base question. I don't know if there's any rational justification to be offered, but I'll find out. I'll ask the question, and we'll see what we can get. And also, another question that I would love to ask in the meantime, I, I, just before I go, uh, uh, is very simple. And uh, how does it become so easy to make a decision to leave out a region like this? Is it because they don't expect to hear anything out of Scott Reed? Is it because this is a controllable area where you will do what we want and you say nothing? You better clean that up, buddy, because the optics of it are absolutely terrible. And I'm pointing this straight at Mr. Fury. You want us to have faith in you? You want us to trust you? Don't do stuff like this. This is a slap in the face to everybody in our region. And it's basically tossing us to the wolves and saying, well, you fellas don't matter that much out there. Dave, that's the optics. Dave, I will try to get an answer to a very basic question as to why Heart Force One can't and won't be landing at Stephenville, period. I'll get an answer. Whether or not people want to hear the answer or will accept it, I'll try to get it. Thank you so much. Appreciate the call. Take care, buddy. You too, bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, All right. Uh, let's take a break on time. Both of you callers stay right there. Reg on snow clearing, and the caller wants to talk about addiction services. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. I want to touch base with you on this facility going up at the Comfort Inn. Now... I think it's a great idea. I hope it takes some of these people out of my neighborhood. But I want to caution the neighborhood down there. Be aware. Be very aware of how your neighborhood's going to change. And nobody, I, you were saying about police presence and things like that. Listen, it's going to do nothing. I live downtown. We now have six bed sitters on my street downtown. I have lost more good neighbors in the past six, seven months, people that have been here their whole life, people with children, because of the B&Es, the break-ins, the needles. Uh, you can even have them on video doing this, and the police do nothing. It's almost like it's their God-given right to come into your home, your vehicle, take what they want, and get away with it. Because, number one, there's nowhere to put these people if they do offend. You know, the judges or the police, everybody's turning a blind eye. Meanwhile, it's the homeowners that are suffering because you can only call your insurance so many times and report, my window smashed out, blah, 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 blah. And your insurance goes through the roof. So what do you do? I mean, the people who own these bed sitters do not even live in the neighborhood. You know, they're living somewhere else. And it's us who live here, lived here for years that suffer the consequences. So what's it going to come down to? Homeowners are going to start taking the law in their own hands. And that's, you know, that's another whole thing out there. But you know what? It's going to happen because people have to start protecting what is theirs, what they worked for, not for someone to walk in and just take what they want and get away with it. 
so that that's not just an issue associated with a neighborhood that would have uh, bed sitting rooms and of course which have literally zero supports available to folks who live there versus some other place that do indeed have some supports which I think makes for a difference whether or not it's an appreciative difference or not I'll leave that up to the individual caller things will change in neighborhoods that change I mean that's one constant in this world it's the only constant is change so will that be a major problem for airport heights and surrounding area when I think it's in March when they start to bring people into the comfort in I don't know will the supports be in Enough to reduce the possibility for criminal activity in the neighborhood? I don't know. Will police presence do something about slowing it down? I think so. You're, more, you're less likely to commit a crime when the cops are there versus when they're not there. So, I mean, like, I don't live in a neighborhood with uh, bed sitting and or transition home or the like, but I guarantee you, it's a common occurrence to see people checking out the cars or breaking into cars or breaking into sheds where I live. And we don't have any type of those homes close by where I live. So it's not unique to neighborhoods like yours. I can guarantee you that. But if they're doing nothing in neighborhoods, thanks for the, you know, quote, like mine, if they're doing nothing in neighborhoods like mine, you know, no support, they get away with what they want. Why are they going to do it in other neighborhoods like Airport Heights? Why? Because they're not downtown? Are we just completely rode off now or what? No, I, I, I don't know why that would be. Well, there's my point. Why would there be support out near Port Heights when there's no support in the downtown neighborhood? You know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, it's a vicious cycle, Patty. People with mental health, people with addictions, the police not doing enough. You know, nowhere to put these people if you charge them. It's a vicious cycle. And the people that are hurting, really hurting, are the people who are working, the people who have homes, the people who try to make their lives better, because they're the ones who are suffering, not the people with, you think, addictions, because they're just, you know, I went out the other day, someone's breaking in my vehicle 9 o'clock in the morning. I said, what are you doing? They just laughed in my face and walked away, because they think it's their right. Well, they're just criminals. I mean... (laughs) Yeah. So what happens? Do do homeowners start buying guns now and take the law in our own hands because we're fed up, you know, with nobody getting charged, nobody getting, you know, uh, hit on the wrist. You know, if they do get hit on the wrist by, you know, the justice system, then they're out walking around doing the same thing the next day. I would suggest, now people will do as they see fit, but I think buying a gun to protect your property from someone breaking in and stealing your coffee money might be doing something. All, all it's going to do is land you in a federal penitentiary versus the someone who's robbing something out of your car. So I know the point you're making, but I, you know, we also have to be uh, realistic here. I don't think we're making very good suggestions if yep. we're talking about getting guns. Patty, if you go on Facebook and you read daily... I don't. Okay, I read daily how many people are getting broken into, things are being robbed, things people worked for their whole life, just to have someone come in and take it... I know. ...and think it's their right because they know, even if they get caught, they're going to get away with it. So you're going to see more and more homeowners say, enough of this, enough of this. Why should these people be getting away with it? And don't use the cloak of, oh, they have addictions, oh, they have mental health issues, you know? 
we're, we're too lenient as far as I'm concerned. Just hold on a second. You don't think that pointing out the obvious is part of the conversation? Like if someone, how many of the crimes that we see, whether it be uh, robberies at stores or people breaking in homes, you don't think that a lot of that is so that they can sell whatever they steal to, to fuel their addiction? Absolutely. Well, I agree with you there. Uh, it may be the cause of what's happening, but you know what? It's not an excuse, Patty. I don't think, I've, I've certainly never offered anything like that as an excuse, but we, you know, to understand how and why is, I think, think a bigger part of the conversation if we're talking about the prevalence of addiction the lack of attention to or access to addiction treatment then all we're doing is it's the same thing if you end up at the penitentiary unless we're trying to help people get off whatever they're addicted to especially some of these synthetic toxic drugs then crime will indeed continue to rise so that's why i talk about it it's not that oh well poor johnny is hooked on cocaine so consequently we just you know okay johnny so you stole my you stole my uh, outboard motor that's all yours no no, no, no. I don't think about it like that. I don't talk about it like that. But unless we do more to deal with what is a crisis in this country, is addiction and overdoses, then we're just shrugging our shoulders. Shrugging our shoulders to a bad situation is just going to do one thing, make it worse. And that's exactly, but it's not the homeowners that are shrugging their shoulders. We're screaming to the top of our lungs. It's the government and the powers that be, whether it be the police, the justice system, whatever way you want to cut it. It's the powers that be that are shrugging their shoulders. I appreciate the time. Hope you're doing okay. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. All right, let's get a break. Right on time. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Say good morning to the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port. He's also the leader of the official opposition. That's Tony Wakem. Good morning, Tony. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. I wanted to talk to you about the AHP uh, impasse, but before I do, I'd like to respond to uh, Dave Dave Callahan's comments this morning yeah. re- related to Heart Force One, and he's absolutely right. There is absolutely no reason for that uh, that plane to land at Stephenville Airport and pick up people here at our hospital in Stephenville. It's not about where the service is based, based out of Gander Central Location, but the fact that Steve Mill is not considered to be one of the pickup sites is extremely uh, disheartening and, and alarming, to be honest, because it doesn't allude to a sinister plan by this Liberal government that they're going to be further downgrade to Steve Mill Hospital. When I think about the health accord and what it was envisioned to do and talked about, it wasn't about closing facilities, it was about maximizing the use of the existing facilities we have and we have an excellent facility right here in Stephenville an ICU ORs available we all know the pressures on specialists especially accessing OR time and we have perfectly good OR here right now the air ambulance program operates out of Stephenville airport and so for someone to suggest that we're now going to have to drive to Deer Lake to access this Heart Force One service that makes no sense at all and, and the patients that are being uh, put on these uh, ambulances usually are patients that are uh, in hospital and they're transferred into the uh, uh, health science center and back the same day type of thing. So for someone to suggest that we're now going to transport people and put them in a road ambulance and have everybody has to go to Deer Lake, it's just not on. I'll add confusing to the uh, the two labels that you tagged on. So I'm going to ask you a question about drawing a line between the airport being further routed of services and this one. But even in the world of logistics, if I live in Stephenville, f- 
a 10-minute drive from the Stephenville Airport, but I'll have to drive to Derrick to get on this particular service. Like, logistically, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. You would imagine that in everyone's best interest, including, most importantly, the patient, that if I live closer to Derrick, I should go, go to Derrick to get on Heart Force One. If I live closer to Stephenville Airport, I should go there. So I just don't understand, even in the world of, log- of logistics, why we've ruled out an airport. I'll try to get an answer to it. But to further your point... What line are you drawing between that decision in the RFP versus, versus the, what you call the erosion or the taking away of services uh, at the Stephenville Hospital? Well, again, you know, the fact of the matter is when I, when I think about the facility itself, the Stephenville Hospital, with, the, with its capabilities, its OR capabilities, its ICU capabilities, and the fact that, you know, surgeons were here. And, and I think what we've got to start looking at is when we look at the health accord and how we deliver services, it shouldn't be simply about recruiting physicians or specialists for a particular building. It should be about recruiting for a region. And as part of that, the Stephenville Hospital is perfectly centered to be part of that solution. So if we've got specialists recruited, having those specialists available to come to Stephenville to perform ORs in Stephenville for people in this surrounding region. So so those are the things I'm talking about. And the fact that that plan or that outline of what exactly the Stephenville Hospital will look like in the future doesn't doesn't seem to be clear yet. And that's a concern for people. Right now, again, access to primary health care is still a challenge out here. Many people are paying nurse practitioners to be their primary care providers. But those are the kinds of things that people need to understand, and they want to know that the hospital here in Stephenville will be fully utilized and maximized to its capabilities. Yeah, fair enough. And I'll follow up with the government side to see if I can get just a base explanation about the landing issue because I'm really basically very confused about that. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I don't know if it's a purposeful long-term or death by a thousand cuts type of thing, but I will get an answer to that very specific question. Then we can further the discussion down the Absolutely. path that you've taken it. Uh, Tony, so I also say that you want to talk about the allied health professionals. Uh, you know, government on this one, to say that there is an essential services piece of legislation in place, which dictates who has to stay on the job if and when there's job action. I know Mr. Piercy at the uh, group itself is probably not going to speak publicly about where the stalemate lies, but your thoughts about what we see is happening. Again, it was disappointing to hear that talks had broken off after about a year and a half and to hear the minister's comments that she simply passed the file over to the Minister of Labor seems like they've thrown their hands up in the air, and I don't think that's the right approach here. I think the AHP have legitimate concerns, and the minister talks about a template. Well, if you're going to talk about a template, then you need to talk about all aspects of it. The template is not only about the percentage increase in wages that you're offering, but it's also about looking at their job evaluation system. And for example, let me give you an example, a quick example. Right now, in some of the other professions, there are six steps on a on a particular scale. Uh, under the AHP, they're limited to three. So there's a, there's less opportunity to move up up those steps. And every step is an, an increase. And on your anniversary date, you generally move up. And what they've done with other contracts is they've adjusted some of those steps. I think the challenge for AHP is there when you look across the country and you compare the, the wages that our current AHP employees get, Get, compared to some of their counterparts in other parts of the, the country, uh, they've fallen behind. So there's this catch-up factor. And if we tr- 
truly value the work that they do, then we should be sitting down with them, acknowledging that and saying, how do we get to a level playing field here? Because these are very valuable employees of our healthcare system. And so it's important that government not simply walk away or say we're at an impasse. I think government owes it to these employees to say, come back, let's sit down and let's continue to work through this process. And I don't see that. I see a government that simply has put their hands up and said, we got a template and that's it. Yeah, there's not a one-size-fits-all, as much as people would like that to be the case in the public sector. Uh, the issue regarding Minister Cody and reference to Minister Davis and the like, is that as much just the perfunctionary government uh, not want to step on each other's toes? Because if I'm the Minister of Labor, then if there's a mediator being called, just based on process and protocol, that's my job as opposed to Minister Cody. So is that just part of that sort of sometimes bit silly territorial issues inside the ministerial portfolios? And it might be. But it sounds so bureaucratic, Patty. Yeah. At a time when when you have these health professionals that are so valuable, that are in demand all across the country, and we're being bureaucratic about who who's responsible for what, that that's not what this is about. This is about the people that are out there working every single day in our healthcare system, provide this valuable services, and we need to show that, and we need to be saying to them, let's find a way to get back to the table. Let's find a way uh, to get involved, and let's make sure that when we when we talk about things, we look at the whole thing. You know, the minister, I'll give her credit, she alluded to the JES process, and they're willing to look at that. But what does that mean? Does that mean it will be done in three months or three years? You know, the AHP have been at this negotiating table now for a year and a half. And we haven't seen those adjustments and that discussion around their job evaluation systems. Perhaps that's where something that they could nail down, get it done, commit to a time frame, a quick time frame. But those are discussions that you have at the table, not, not simply by walking away from it. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm not involved in those negotiations. I don't know where the standoff lies. But things like job evaluation systems, that's a, you know, we agree today to sign a contract to agree to a deadline down the road. Because if we're going to make that the be-all and end-all, we'll be another year and a half. Well, that's exactly why it's so important, because you're absolutely right. If we don't have strict deadlines on this stuff, that's what, why people will not stay. They, they, You know, for someone to say we'll enter into a process, that's not good enough. And this JES, or the job evaluation system, was done back in 2015. So my understanding is some of the job descriptions right now either are incorrect or no longer applicable. So, you know, surely we, we should be able to turn around and look at job descriptions across the country and be able to compare them with the positions that we have here in our province. And that should be a fairly easy process to do and start evaluating them uh, and make sure that we are uh, paying them appropriately and we are competitive with the rest of the country. Yeah, well, I mean, we just got to get it done because when you add to the pile the frustrations of whether it be rate of pay and work-life balance or mandatory overtime and access to care and people complaining all the time and they're really under heavy scrutiny, it just adds to it. You know, I know we all have, well, many of us have jobs that can scrutinize quite heavily, but inside the world of healthcare where we already have some built-in struggles for patients and professionals alike, I'd like to see this get concluded uh, ASAP. Before we run out of time and get to the 
the newscast. So we've got a by-election. Uh, voting day itself is on Monday, January 29th. I think the special ballots are out on the 22nd, if I'm not mistaken. Tony, the allegation is that you handpicked Tina Neri. Then there was a big uprising inside the district association itself. So in your words, how did Tina Neri become the candidate? Tina Neri uh, went through a nomination process. And Patty, just to be perfectly clear, I had nothing to do with that. The only thing that I do is actually pick the date that the nomination will take place. And I intend to have nominations for every single district, whether you're incumbent or not an incumbent, whether you know that seat is represented by a, a PC at the moment or not, because that's the open and transparent process, and that's a process we will continue to have. Now the fellow who was the president uh, of the district association is running as he calls himself an independent PC. I don't know what level of support that any of the candidates necessarily have in that voting district. Are you worried at all that someone who is built into the PC fabric town, they're running as an independent, may indeed sort of so-called split the vote somewhat that might hamper missionaries' opportunity? Patty, I've been out uh, door knocking in that district, and I could tell you that that issue has not come up. Uh, people in the district know who the official PC candidate is. Tina Neri has a qualification and a background and a resume that is second to none. And uh, she's worked with people all her life. And that's why she's a great candidate for the PC Party Newfoundland and Labrador, because we have truly said, and I truly believe this, and I've kept saying this all along, that we will put people before politics. And that's what Tina Neri has done all her life. I suppose there's a predictable answer coming to this one, but how much stock do you have to put into this? Because it goes without saying, every candidate wants to win this seat. And you know, the Liberals would like to take it back from the Tories, the NDP would like to carve in a, a member down in Portugal called St. Phillips, but it's been a Tory stronghold for 20 years. Does that put more pressure on yourself? Well, I think what it, what it is, I mean, this that seat has been well represented in the past, as you know, uh, for the last number of years by David Brazel. And uh, in particular, he's, he's made it his own seat. And uh, but what's what's happened is they've had great representation, whether David was a, uh, a member in the government side or whether it's been an opposition. He has continued to represent the people of Conception Bay, East Bell Island, and that's exactly what Tina Neri will do. But the responses at the door that we're getting are people are not happy with the Liberal government. The Liberal government themselves seem to be not happy with their own performance. I mean, they literally have whitewashed their signs, and uh, if you don't have a magnifying glass, you can't see the word liberal on any of their campaign posters. So, you know, they're ashamed of their own record, and uh, if they don't want to run on their record, we'll certainly run on it because it's been dismal. And the, uh, the people of the province and the people of the district of Sepsu Bay, East Bell Island, are not happy with the Liberal government, and I think you're going to see that at the uh, polls. I appreciate the time this morning, Tony. Thanks for the call. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Tony Wakeham is the leader of the official opposition, the PC member for Steamboat Port of Port. Let's take a break for the news. Do not go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 5.45 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration, shows, and new music. Tune in to Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, today for most of us, it's just January the 18th, but for small and medium-sized businesses around the country, it's the last day to repay your CBA loan. Join us on line number three is the Vice President of Atlantic of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. That's Louis-Philippe Louis Gauthier. Uh, Monsieur Gauthier, you're on the air. Well, good morning. Good day. Welcome to the show. 
Oh, thank you. So, you know, to paint a picture of how important this is, let's go back to the beginning about SIBA, the way it was created and how it was afforded to small businesses. So just paint that picture about how business availed of the SIBA loan to begin with. Well, essentially, the federal government put this program in place uh, for the first, if you will, shutdowns when health hoarders basically shut down businesses and to try to help them pay their bills uh, through that period. So the initial amount was for available for businesses was 40,000. When new shutdowns came around, and everybody remembers those, uh, the businesses could go for an additional $20,000 to help them pay their bill. Now the program was structured in such a way that uh, if you took the $40,000 loan, government would forgive 10,000. If you took the full amount of 60, government would forgive 20,000 if you repaid by a certain date. That date, uh, the federal government pushed it back uh, a year already at this point. Uh, but uh, now today we are at the final date. Uh, so businesses, uh, the majority of businesses would have repaid their loans. Our numbers show that at least uh, 22% of our members at least are telling us that they weren't able, uh, would not be able to repay by today. So to give you a sense in Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, that could translate to anywhere between 1,700 to 2,800 businesses uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador that today essentially will see that loan convert into a full loan. They'll lose the forgivable portion, uh, which is very unfortunate, uh, and that'll be transferred into a three-year uh, loan at 5%. Help walk us through the special extension, which is March the 28th of this year. What exactly is entailed in that extension? Well, uh, let's say you're a business today and you don't have the money to repay the, the 40000 or the, uh, the the amount that you need to pay today. Uh you have either two choices. You, you, you can renegotiate, for example, with your lender and say, well, I'd like to borrow the amount I need to be repay and then the repay. And then you can avail yourself of the forgivable portion, which is uh, very much needed in these cases. If you're in the process of negotiating with your lender or you indicated that you're looking for additional financing, then you can have an extension until March 28th. What does that mean? Well, uh, if you're able to repay by March 28th, uh, then at that point you'll be paying only the interest and you will have been able to avail yourself of the forgivable portion. So uh, it's it's an option, uh, but it's still a lot of money. And generally speaking, businesses that don't have it right now are also having difficulties in finding uh, this additional financing to be re- to repay it today. And there's a lot of confusion, unfortunately, with some financial institutions uh, because apparently them discussing or talking with EDC hasn't been very, very clear all the time. But we're hearing stories from members where even their financial institutions aren't aren't even aware of the March 28th option. What type of interest rate uh, attached for the extension? Uh, it's 5%. Uh, now, the business doesn't have to repay the principal uh, every month. Uh, they could essentially win until uh, the end of three years and repay it all at that point, uh, but it would be 5%. I can't speak for the lenders and or the individual businesses, but if I can't repay this loan, then the opportunity to walk into a bank for bridge financing or to refinance this loan seems pretty limited. 
that's what we're hearing from our members. Uh, some of them being told outright, no, we won't provide that. And then after that, there are companies that are providing bridge financing. But as you can ex- imagine, you know, with the toll of uh, the last few years, with the pandemic, with the increased cost over the last year and a half, uh, across uh, the line items on their books, uh, it's not an easy situation. So as soon as a, a third-party lender looks at, at the books, uh, then the, the question becomes, is it the, an opportunity for a, a lender or not? So you're correct. So the CBA loan, I mean, it felt like the government was there to try to protect businesses in the long term. But for many of them, the last thing they really needed to take on was more debt. So here we find ourselves in this circumstance. When the loans will not be paid. Now, some of the 22% absolutely will not be repaying this loan. I wonder, are there different sectors of the economy that are more prone to potential bankruptcies as a result of January 18th and or March 28th? Because we hear, like, for instance, in the hospitality sector, there's thousands of restaurants across the country that are teetering, that many of them still have the outstanding CBA loan. So can you point to different sectors of the groups that you, re- the businesses that you represent that are more precarious? Well, you, you just named one. So the hospitality, i.e. restaurants, are, are amongst the top two. The other one would be small small retail. Now, uh, overall, when you, you look at the numbers, the businesses that are struggling the most to repay are on the smaller size, as you can imagine. Now, I'd hope your audience keep in mind, you know, these businesses didn't ask to be shut down. The health orders shut them down multiple times. This was essentially a uh, support provided to them to be able to pay their bills uh, while uh, they were not operating, not generating revenue. So it's 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 very unfortunate, and from our perspective, at least, you no, know, Ottawa has basically failed to address the most difficult part of this, which is the loss of the uh, forgivable portions. So in if you think about it, if you've taken a, a $60,000 CBA loan and you had 20000 that was forgivable and now you're losing that, that basically means that your debt uh, has risen by 50%. So it's not an insignificant amount. No, hardly. Now, I mean, there will be a sector of the population that says, well, you took on a loan, knowing the implications, and now the chickens have come home to roost. But that does not include the fact that if we have, I think there was somewhere around 50,000 businesses took avail- took uh, advantage of the CBA loan. You mentioned 22% are still unable at this point to repay. Consequently, the forgivable portion goes by the wayside. So... Add to it a pretty flat economy. You know, we haven't had any significant growth in the recent past. In fact, it's quite stagnant right across the entirety of the business community and the economy uh, at large. What do you have to say about things like, you know, the stubborn inflationary rate? So it went back up again to 3.4 from 3.1. Food inflation remains really quite stubborn in this country. And the Bank of Canada seems adamant on trying to pull all the interest levers, interest rate levers, to try to get back into the 2% window, you know, versus the fact that that's, you know, uh, Mr. Macklem has said the, the quiet part out loud. There will be pain inflicted by the Bank of Canada and consequently hurting your business groups because the government is not the economy, I'm the economy. Economy. So what do you say to Mr. Macklem, if you had his ear this morning, about his hell-bent for leather with 10 consecutive rate hikes, which has really pummeled mo- most of us? Well, the, the reality, unfortunately, is all throughout this, just as like the inflation has impacted consumers, it's impacted businesses. Sure. We've seen it on wage growth. We've seen it on uh, their, their bills for their occupancy when they're leasing or renting. We've seen it on uh, their uh, cost of debt. 
So to give you an example, uh, we have two-thirds of our members that say that their debt is in form of a variable rate. Now, if, it can, if you think about that, you wouldn't be surprised to, to, to learn that through our numbers, we see as soon as the interest rates from the, the central bank started going up, our members' concerns or, or burden, if you will, relating to uh, the additional payments that they had to do uh, went up, and it's still up. Uh, insurance costs. Insurance costs are high, high, high for a lot of our members. And for example, in Newfoundland Labrador, you have the only 15% uh, sales tax on insurance in Atlantic Canada, and it's the highest in Canada, in, in Atlantic Canada, and the highest in Canada. So there are measures where government could be helping right now. Um, but it's not an easy uh, go at it. Uh, for some, there's no question some businesses are doing well. Uh, but to your point of earlier, you know, the economy is flat for many. So that that's uh, that's how we're starting 2024 right now. Yeah, added credit card fees and some issues that are really dogging a lot of small business. You know, I don't know where the concept of fairness comes in, and I'll get your thoughts on this, because, you know, if we talk about the wage subsidy, which I think was, you know, the CERB had lack of oversight and monitoring. A lot of people got it. That shouldn't have got it. You know, clawing back from people trying to get blood out of a turnip also seems like a stupid idea to me. But in the wage subsidy world, we had companies that were in no peril at all, regardless of shutdowns or lockdowns or pandemic restrictions. Some of the biggest companies, say, for instance, the big three in the telecom world, they take advantage of those programs to the tune of, I don't know, $200, $250 million. Yet we've got small businesses, which are the actual backbone of the economy, not Bell or Telus. And consequently, we're not going to see the federal government. Well, here's the deadline. It doesn't look like there's going to be any ability to work further with the government to make sure you can pay back a loan. You took a loan, you should pay it back. But talk about the concept of fairness. Because, you know, the wage subsidy, we saw companies for the first time ever uh, have a dividend or increase dividends. And the Ottawa Country Club, the golf club there, you know, at their annual general meeting, the treasurer said, we have a $1 million surplus. It was asked from the floor why. He said the wage subsidy, which is not how it was intended to be used. So talk about fairness in trying to deal with the members that you represent versus some of the big companies that took advantage, knowing they didn't need it, but it was a real boon to their bottom line. Well, the, 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 the question is definitely that it's not fair. <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you consider uh, that uh, the impact typically of either any government measure is higher uh, on small businesses, this is a perfect example of it. Um, who is being affected right now uh, through this this program? It's the small, uh, the smaller size firms. Uh, who needed the money most when uh, they were shut down? It's the smaller size firms. Uh, but now they might lose this forgivable portion. And for those for those that that would say, for example, do you remember we had, uh, of course, we had the wage subsidies, we had the, this loan program, uh, but there was also a program directly aimed at workers that have lost their employment. Yeah, sir. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so so they, they, they got uh they, they could get up to twenty thousand dollars and that's not repayable. That was just there to support them. So so for government to to, to say no look we're gonna steadfast and nope, we're just not moving. Uh and for those very smaller sized businesses that that are having still a tough time, uh to lose that twenty thousand uh and now go from forty thousand to sixty thousand to have to repay. Well, no, that's definitely not fair. 
it's a an interesting day. We'll see what becomes of it. But I, you know, like you'll be tracking. We'll all be tracking the numbers of six months from now. How many of those twenty two percent are still in operation? And what that's meant for not only the business owner who, for for the most part, has put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into their operation, and consequently, how many jobs have also been shed from the economy, which is hurting on that front. Job numbers have been dismal the last couple of reports. Uh, final thoughts to you this morning, uh, Louis Philippe. Well, uh, positive thoughts to the business owners that have a tough choice to, to make today. Uh, and uh, really, if they're looking at external financing uh, and they're going through that, make sure you notify your financial institution so that they know you might be able to avail yourself of the 20, March 28th deadline. And uh, crunch the numbers. See, see how much uh, you can actually save compared to uh, letting the loan turn into a three-year at 5%. Yeah, I imagine a lot of line of credits are going to get tapped out today. Uh, I appreciate your time this morning, sir. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. That's uh, Louis-Philippe Gauthier. He's the VP Atlantic for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, say good morning to the NDP candidate running in the by-election, the upcoming by-election in Conception Bay, East Bell Island. That's Kim Churchill. Good morning, Kim. You're on the air. Hey, how are you doing this morning, Patty? Hanging tough. How about you? <laughs> same, same here. <laughs> I just want to call in this morning uh, because uh, I have something that uh, I want to talk about with regards to the allied health workers. Um, Jim Din and the NDP, as you know and your listeners know, have been saying for years, uh, and what really labor unions have been saying for years is that we need to focus on treating health care workers with respect, and we need to be focusing on retaining as many of them as we can. But this government is refusing to do that because that, of course, would take hard work. And, you know, it's easy to go out there, hire people who are disparate, probably need a job, and will take the job. But to actually address the workplace issues and the disrespect that I've been hearing people tell me at the door, the systemic issues that are causing the healthcare workers to go either to another jurisdiction or move on to the private side because for some reason, this government thought that it made more sense in healthcare during a crisis to offer private health care workers better incentives, better pay than we do our own. And, you know, we got to remember, these health care workers carried us through the pandemic, and we couldn't, we literally could not live without them. And now we've got a government that's shocked that we have the Association of Allied Health Professionals that walked away from the bargaining table yesterday. Yeah. You know, the, the real crux of this, and, and this is what I've been hearing, because I've talked to many health care um, allied health professionals at the doors when I've been out canvassing, and what I'm hearing is that they're not being treated with dignity. They're not being respected as workers, and they don't feel that the job evaluation system is being fa- applied fairly, and from what I've been learning about it, it doesn't seem to be the case. And so, you know, it's something that obviously needs to be looked at, because that is the whole point of having an evaluation system, is to try, of course, to make job evaluations fair classifications of fair um, and so what we're hearing is that uh, you know it's not being applied and we have to listen to these workers they're the ones that are experiencing this and to be honest this doesn't give me any comfort that this government has a handle on the health care crisis and it tells me that it's actually spiraling and getting worse and when you talk about private, I assume you mean the travel agency nurses. And it's going to be hard to put that toothpaste back in the tube because once they're part of it, it's going to be hard to envision how they're no longer part of it in the near term. So I don't know where that goes. But yeah. with the respect on the job and what have you, and, you know, for most of the part, when we're talking about collective bargaining, it would be about money because it's hard to negotiate respect. 
Where does that responsibility lie? Because, you know, it's easy enough for the buck to stop on Tom Osborne's desk, and that's because he's the Minister of Health and Community Services. But the sum of the nameless, faceless supervisors, mid-management, and even if we talk about in government, you know, uh, assistant uh, deputy ministers and deputy ministers, the people who really are calling a lot of the shots, the people with the intimate knowledge of the workings of their portfolio versus the turnstile that sometimes could be a minister, I think when we look at the respect issue, we've got to be able to put a bit more meat on that bone. Because I don't think Tom Osborne does a lot of day-to-day operational stuff, nor do I think any Minister of Health does or could or should. So I don't know how we get down to that brass tax of the respect issue, because that's on the floor, right? That's in the clinic. Mm-hmm. That's in the hospital. That's in the OR. That's in the ICU. It's not inside a confederation building. So I struggle with how to even talk about that issue. So if, if you're, say, for instance, you're the Minister of Health, what do you think your responsibility is on that front? Because day-to-day operations uh, alongside big picture is a pretty big portfolio of I don't think many people would want. Right. And, you know, just to, just to clear up um, what I'm talking about, allied health professionals, um, the nursing and the nursing union is a separate union. And so, and of course, we know that they haven't been, you know, they've been going through very similar things as allied health professionals, uh, as well as regards to um, having to fight for, you know, the respect that they also deserve. Um, you know, allied health professionals encompass 29 different professionals. And, you know, Patty, you know my story with regards to my son Carter being born. He was born premature. We didn't know whether he was going to make it. Um, he, he entered in very difficult uh, beginnings, and we found out he had cerebral palsy. We found out he was deaf. And so I can tell you from these 29 professionals, we actually have used 19 of them. They have literally kept my son alive. They have helped him learn how to crawl. They had, uh, we've had to use social workers and psychologists helping us through all these difficult times early on. Uh, We've had occupational therapists who we've used that have actually taught Carter how to drink with a straw. And I mean, like, this might seem minor to some people, but I can guarantee you it's life-changing when you're in a situation when the only way, for example, to drink is to use a straw. And so, you know, a lot of these people um, are being undervalued. And I can tell you from my own perspective, from my family, we wouldn't be where we are today if we didn't have those professionals to rely on and uh, it's so it's very concerning for me and you know what what this means to our health care because I think about all the other families across the province that do rely on these health care workers and may not even realize that their care is going to change because government is you know having to having to be putting these health care workers through this and treating them like they're they're replaceable and you know if we're looking if they're looking honestly at the, the same health care system that we're all living through and they're seeing a crumble around them, why would they stay? And when I said earlier about private, they might be – I've talked to pharmacists that are working in hospitals, and they're actually looking at going into uh, a private market because they know they have coworkers or they have um, um, members that are working in the private uh, industry, and they see that they're getting treated better. They're getting more money. They're getting paid uh, or they're getting more respect. They're getting uh, treated better, and they don't understand why this government is not treating them equitably as well uh, as other other professions uh, that are doing the same job. And I think that's what it comes down to is that, you know, 
the government is literally draining our public health care system, and they don't seem to care, and that's quite frightening. And, you know, we don't need new contracts. We don't need a new building being leased. We don't need any shiny new health record systems or um, a new hospital that nobody asked for. We need to focus on HR issues because this is what this is. Sure, and we keep spending we more money on health care. Nine, you know, $9 billion budget, and what is it, almost $4 billion on health care. So I don't know about who cares or who doesn't. And the medical records thing, that was directly attached to the health care transfer dollar coming from the federal government. That was one of the earmarks on that one. So I guess we were kind of stuck with that one so uh, somewhat. But the whole concept of they may be viewing these people as replaceable, the concept that everyone is replaceable is a bit of a throwaway because inside of some of these disciplines of the 29, we have an, a shortage already. Psychologists, you already mentioned, right. we have a problem with psychologists and the numbers of and the ability to train mm-hmm. more in this problem. So there's no replaceables on that list of the 29 disciplines, which is quite varied from auditory verbal therapists, which I know your family would have availed of, and then an mm-hmm. anesthesia respiratory, respiratory therapist, of which we have a shortage. So there's problems up and down this list. Uh, I'll give you another 30 seconds, Kim, because I'll wait for the news. Sure, not a problem. I mean, I'm not a union negotiator, obviously, but what I do know is that we're seeing a pattern of healthcare workers uh, saying that they, you know, this is what they're telling us, that they, they are feeling disrespected. Uh, and, and, you know, we've got to, I want to see this, the union and the government, back in the, the negotiating table in good faith. And that's what's going to happen if the union believes that the government will enter these talks in good faith. And, you know, I want to be, I want to hope that they can move towards a resolution so ultimately, you know, these teams can come together and uh, be able to resolve this because otherwise, you know, why would these people go back to the table if they're not being respected and treated, um, you know, with what they deserve and and uh, be listened to? Appreciate the time, Kim. Thank you. Good All luck. right. Thanks so much, Patty. Have, take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Kim Churchill, NDP candidate, Conception Bay East, Bell, Conception Bay East, Bell Island. Okay. RCMP Travel Advisory. Uh, extremely icy conditions and uh, snow squalls on the Veterans Memorial Highway. Please avoid the area if possible. Time for a break. Reg, you stay right there to talk about snow removal. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Reg, you are on the air. Good morning, Patty. My son, I had a lot of trouble getting through to you this morning. I I guess trouble with the phones here. I had to call back four times. But anyway, now you might lose me, but I'm going to give it. I tried my best. Because I don't know, I think there's something going crazy with the phones. Anyway, Patty, now my son, listen, we got more problems, you know, not only health care, the fishery, housing, and the list goes on, the cost of living and what have you. We got a major problem with our snow clearing. And I'm going to direct this uh, question, or just now, right to the Premier of Newfoundland, Premier Fury. My son, you got to take a look at this stuff. I went to Gander yesterday morning. Now, we had a bit of snow out here in Air Bay uh, that night, not in Tom Major. When I got to the Trans-Canada, that was around 12 o'clock in the day now, Patty. We had the snow in the night. We're not talking early in the morning. We're talking 12 o'clock in the day. I was going to the airport. From Joey's lookout, right all the way, I could pretty well say, right to Benton for sure, you could not use the slow lane. There was cars in the passing lane all the way. I mean, I'm, I'm serious, Patty. I looked in the mirror, and it looked like a, a funeral. I mean, it was pathetic. I mean, the, the, the snow, I mean, I got a truck. So I said, I'll put her in 4x4 four four and go over in the snow lane. There was a lot of slush and a lot of snow. 
Now, I don't know if when they ploughed, if they forgot to put the wing down on the plough truck or not, because I guarantee you it was totally ridiculous. So, and not only out here, Patty, I mean, it's it's other places, because I heard a gentleman on your show there earlier in the week, <clears throat> up in the Witless Bay area, I thought he said, they had issues out there. When we got to the airport, I talked to a couple of gentlemen there that come from somewhere down the West Coast to get the flight down wherever they were going, and they were running late. They only had, I think the flight was delayed for a little while, but, I mean, Patty, what's going on? Did they cut the budget on the snow clearing? I mean, it's totally ridiculous. I mean, our roads, our Trans-Canada, I mean, got to be done better than what they're doing. I mean, you know, people going to different places, hospitals and appointments, and you get on the, the roads. I could understand it was snowing steady. I could understand that. They, they can only do what they can do. But, I mean, 12 o'clock in the day, the roads were, it was nice driving in, regarding the weather-wise. Uh, and the uh, snow, the roads, uh, it's, 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 it's uncalled for. It's never going to be perfect because it's not an exact science, but we hear complaints about snow, removal of ice management every single time there's either or on the ground. So I don't know what the deal is. They have not cut back on the snow clearing budget, but certainly it's not adequate most times. When I wake up and I come in on a morning where I hear the weather forecast and there's snow in one part of the province or another, I can predict that I'm going to get either a phone call or we're going to get emails saying that the roads are not cleared adequately. So I don't know what the hell's going on, but that's the case. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying, Patty. You know, it's not just out here. I mean, from, say, uh, Gamble turn off to, to Gander. I mean, uh, those gentlemen come from out in Deer Lake somewhere to get the flight going to Voices, wherever. And he said, thank God that the plane was delayed half an hour because you've got to be there two hours before the flight leaves mm-hmm. and all this good stuff. You know, Patty, and, but uh, they made it. And uh, like he was saying, the roads was, was terrible. So I get a message now to, for Elvis. When it snows again and he decides to leave the building, get in his vehicle and take a ride out on the Trans-Canada somewhere and have a look at our, tra- our road conditions. And if he feels that they're good, get on the open line and tell the people in Newfoundland, our roads are good to go, don't worry about it. So now, Patty, you have a good day. You too, Reg. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk again. I got a little problem now with the health issue, but I'll need that for another day sometime next week. So take care, and I'll talk to you later. You take good care of yourself as well, Reg. Thanks for the call. Okay, myself. All right, bye-bye. Okay, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number one. Taylor, you're on the air. Hi, how are you doing? Doing okay. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Um, I just wanted to add on to the lady that was speaking about uh, the allied healthcare workers and how they're not being treated fairly and having a lot of issues. Um, coming from a place of uh, secretarial uh, administration and stuff, uh, it's it's definitely not just uh, frontline care workers. It's not just nurses and specialists and physicians. It's it's the the administrative staff as well. Uh, it's it's our physicians are overwhelmed. They have so many patients so many things that they need to do and they're doing this all they can but I think a lot of uh, like a lot of people forget that there is a person behind the scenes um, managing everything that happens uh, from a frontline care's perspective and it's it's very rare to only have one physician I know that most of us have at least two and uh, 
<clears throat> excuse me, with the shortages of, of admins and everything, I mean, I've had up to three doctors and three nurses at a time. Um, I know of someone who is doing secretarial work for up to six or seven specialists at a time over three different departments. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure about the number of secretarial floats that are available right now. Um, I know, I just know about myself, um, but it's nearly impossible to get secretarial coverage right now. And it's, it's, it's sad. It's really hard for everybody. And I, I wish that there was more that we could do, but we really do need more. We definitely need more. I, I know we need more, but it's really hard to square some of these circles, right? There's more doctors and nurses practicing here in the province than ever before. So I just don't know what's going on. And if it was a matter of money, we'd have it all settled and solved because we spend a ton of money on health care, almost $4 billion out of a $9 billion budget, and yet we find ourselves in this predicament. So I don't know where the answers lie. You know, in the world of doctors, and more than ever before in the province, we don't know if they have a full patient roster or if they're simply uh, academics or they have a half a patient roster or they're simply working at the meds. Like, we just don't know. Pure research. But the numbers are not adding up. Yeah, there's definitely some uh, some gaps in the information. I know I can only speak for where I've been, but I know everybody is, is pretty full. Everyone has so many patients and so many other things that they're doing, so many hands and so many hats. But it's it's crazy. And then there needs to be something something with a light shine on, like, what is actually going on. Yeah. I mean, do you have any ideas? Because, you know, we'll put all of the onus and the responsibility on the minister's desk. But when we're talking about day-to-day operations and respect and work-life balance, that happens on the floor. So how do we broach that side of the subject? Honestly, I wish I had some answers. Um, the only thing that comes to mind, I know that there was a retention bonus for um, healthcare professionals and nurses, which yep. is fantastic. They definitely deserve it. Um, but I know that there was some, some talk about a retention bonus for um, support staff, like uh, the other people that work in the hospital and clerks and secretaries, and there was, there's been no word on that. So I don't know if maybe that would help people. I know that they're doing... Um, they're giving out grants and stuff like that to people who want to come in to be administrators and clerks and secretaries and all of those good things. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure why, like, I know there's people, but we're floundering. There's not very many of us at all. Again, I wish I had some answers here. And plus, I'll add to it, and this is not defense of anyone on any level of government, but the issues that we're dealing with here are the exact same issues that are dealing with right across the country. So now we find ourselves in a place where you remember not that long ago, there was the government of Saskatchewan here and the government of Nova Scotia actively trying to poach our healthcare professionals. Then we played a little bit of tit for tat. Basically, we got ourselves into a bidding war. We're not adding any additional professionals necessarily to the various professions. We're simply trying to outbid each other for the ones that are currently here and or try to attract the same people from whether it be doctors from Ireland or nurses from India. Some of this is just a bit of a, uh, a circular nature of really not getting very far ahead, although talking about it a lot and putting lots of money on the table. But it doesn't seem to be getting that much better. No, for sure. It's definitely a very widespread issue that's going on everywhere, not just in Newfoundland and Labrador. But it's, it's uh, I, and I know that there's like the upper levels of it too. It's not that people aren't trying to do everything that they can. To say that there's an essential services piece of like I'm sorry, that's okay. audio just bled in. If that was his job action. I know Mr. Piercy at Dave, the, what's going uh, on the group there? itself is probably not going to speak publicly about where the sale Sorry, Taylor, lie. I don't know what's happening here. There's old audio bleeding into our conversation. Oh, that's okay. Okay, so I'll give you the final thoughts. Go right ahead. 
Perfect. Um, I just kind of wanted to bring attention to the fact that it's not just frontline care workers and everything, and I know that their issues are completely super important. It's not... I'm not trying to say that it's it's more important or less important. I just kind of wanted to bring to the front the fact that there are issues as well with administrative staff and other support staff uh, that also need to be looked at. A hundred percent. You know, we focus in on the top level headliners, the, the doctors and the registered nurses, nurse practitioners, but we've got, I don't know, 35, 40 disciplines inside the world of healthcare, and they all deserve similar attention. I really appreciate the call this morning, Taylor. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Take good care. You too. All right. Bye bye. All right. Final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number three. Gerald, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? That's kind. You? Good, Patty. I just left Cornerbrook. I was driving a taxi. Uh, I left Cornerbrook at 1030, and from Cornerbrook to the wage scales, you can't see a hand in front of your rear. Disability, bad, blowing snow, 70 kilometers an hour. But after I got past the wage scales, like sun and day. But. I just got a call over the radio from our dispatcher. The roads are closed from Steady Burke to Cornwall, so I don't know what's going on behind me, but it's not fit. I'm getting lots of reports of uh, tricky conditions everywhere. And so this is basically the snow squalls getting in your way this morning, Gerald, or what is it? Yes, sir. All snow squalls, snow coming and blowing snow squalls for sure. It's it's visibility not you know it's not, it's not good. Fair warning to everyone out there. Of course, there's some people you can give out all the travel advisors we like, but some people, they have no choice. they got to be out there. they got to get where they're going, whether it be as a cab driver or a truck driver, someone going to the doctor or someone going to visit their mother, whatever it is. People can be told it's dangerous out there, but that doesn't mean that folks t- still don't need to travel. No, that's true. That's true. They're going to do it. But if they do it, Patty, uh, hope they do it in the right way. Slow down like they all say. Slow means slow. So slow means slow. It generally does. Gerald, I appreciate the warning here this morning. So they're talking about, you know, taxi drivers uh, in this part of the province, talking about all the ride share issues and the cost of insurance to be a cabbie in the first place. What's it like for you out on the West Coast? Well, on the West Coast, you know, like, well, we got uh, so many taxis. We got, I'd say, roughly between only two taxi cars. We got 40. But, I mean, the, the business is there, but it's not there for bringing another Right, sure. I don't think they're going to be busy, busy. And like I said, they, they work in the nighttime. Uh, nighttime, it, it, no matter in St. John's, or whatever, you get spooky people that you're going to encounter stuff that you're not. Like we're after, they were all back. We had a, oh, two or two months ago, we had one of our drivers got hit over the head with a bottle in nighttime. Now, that's, like I said, that's the better scene. But I, I don't see them people, the younger people who are there, they're going to put up with that. Uh, I don't see them put themselves put. Like I said, it's not, uh, in my opinion, it's not a business for those guys and us and the other companies. I don't, I don't think so. It's going to be a tricky piece of business around here, and I didn't mind giving a shout-out to one of the local cab companies because I was just on the mainland and I used Uber because it was easy. Plus, I don't know the other cab companies. I don't have their number in my phone book, so I just used what was available to me at the touch of a finger. But here on this part of the province, you know, that Jiffy Cab, they've upped their game, and they've got a new app that works extremely well. They seem to have, you know, been preparing for Uber to possibly come to town so they can fight a fair fight. So, you know, it's not up for me to, to tell people how to spend their own hard-earned money, but be careful careful to make sure that we don't drive a lot of local business out because of so-called ease and it might not be any less expensive in, in fact in some cases it might be more expensive to use that service uber exactly. i mean yeah yeah it's a two-way street but look at say if you're going to bring in the uber and and they do take some of the business we bought i mean it, how um how can i say how, how important how 
reliable are they? I mean, they got to be reliable right now, aren't we? And we get drivers. I've been driving myself 40 years off and on, and, and we got other drivers that know the weather, know the new plan of the weather, and know what to go with. And we, before we go, we don't go if there's any danger. We don't go online just like, I mean, on the West Coast, we go, our company goes from St. Anthony. Like, we, we got the airport airport contract with the luggage. We go from St. Anthony to, from Delhi to Porterbass to Gander, Grandfather, Paper. And I'm telling you, we went out there in scary times, Patty. I'm telling you, Paul, we're out there, and we know what it's all about. That you do. Gerald, I appreciate you making time. Be careful out there. I will. Thank you. Have a good day. You take good care. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, that's a very real issue. I mean, the taxi drivers around here, the taxi uh, camp company owners, are extremely nervous about this. Uh, let's see. Let's get a final thought on line number two. Good morning, Jeff. You're on the air. Hey there. How's it going? Doing okay. How you doing? I'm okay. Thanks. For, I'm, I'm in Gooseville. We're getting, we're getting a blast of snow and wind. <laughs> Little blast of wind and snow squalls right here outside my window on VOCM as well this morning. <laughs> um, no, I I just wanted to call. Um, uh, last last summer uh, in July, I I suffered a stroke, and and um, uh, I, I was I was in hospital here in ICU for like eleven days before before I. The medevac was able to bring me to the Miller Center, and um, and all all the staff and uh, everyone at the Miller Center were a like a one, um, but but above uh, even above and beyond that, I wanted I wanted to. Um, Give a give a big shout out to a, a gentleman that that I shared a room with. His name is um, Gerard Gerard Fleming. Um, like I'm I'm <laughs> I'm only in my early fifties. So uh, and and this gentleman was like eighty five, I believe. And him between him, his wife, and his son and daughter. They, they, they made my made my stay in in the hospital there like way like way more like easy, and it, I I never met anyone with with such a such a nice attitude. Like um, he he had, he was after losing a leg and. Um, <laughs> between between me and him I think we kind of tormented nurses but but um he I, I if if he didn't know I I want him to know now that that just just knowing him and getting to meet him made made a huge difference for me I'm really pleased to hear that and how's recovery going where are you Jeff I'm I'm doing very well um like uh, um, see, like I had my stroke on like the last week of July, and uh, by the time I came back to Goose Bay, it was like August the 10th, and, and and I was I was already walking then, and and I'm 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 doing physiotherapy, so like I'm um, I'm still quite weak on my right side, but. 
but I'm, I'm if if I were to like judge my like myself alongside uh, the other people that were at the motor center, I, I'm I'm doing very well. I'm really pleased to hear that. I'm glad you made time for the program this morning to offer up that bouquet. Uh, continued good health recovery to you, Jeff. Really appreciate your time. All right. Thank you, man. You take good care of yourself. All right. Okay, bye-bye. There we go. That's a good one to wrap up the program. Final check-in on the Twitter box for VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Some concerns about some of the businesses unable to repay their loan. You know, one particularly snarky comment, well, if you can't repay that loan, are you really a business? Look, there are small business owners across this country who have been maxing out their own lines of credit and their own credit cards to try to keep the doors open to preserve the jobs that they've created to hopefully see for a brighter, better future. Not all small businesses have bounced back at the same rate, and certainly with some of our entertainment budget money like for instance in the hospitality sector the restaurant sector times are tight so people aren't spending like they used to with some of those places like a restaurant so consequently some will be struggling all right good show today we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on vocm and big land fm's open line on behalf of the producer david williams i'm your host patty daly have yourself a safe fun happy day we'll talk in the morning bye-bye